With great power comes great responsibility. Compromise where you can. Where you can't, don't. Even if everyone is telling you that something wrong is something right. Even if the whole world is telling you to move. It is your duty to plant yourself like a tree. Look them in the eye and say no. You move. Never step onto the battlefield of ideas unprepared. Before you enter the fray, you need a plan. And there's no better place to get one than right here on Tactics with host Caleb Colquitt. The Situation Room goes live now on News Radio 1440. And welcome into the program, everybody. Thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Now, you probably have picked up on by now, because you're very observant, that this is not our usual studio or our usual setup, and that is because we're going to be doing kind of a special program tonight. We're doing a roundtable. I've got a lot of guests in here to help us discuss this issue, and we're going to be focusing primarily tonight on the issue of abortion, and this is because the Supreme Court has decided that they're going to take up a case that could potentially overturn Roe v. Wade, and so we're going to talk about what that would mean, what it would look like, the likelihood of that and, and whether or not that's going to come to pass and and for that we have several guests this evening that are going to be discussing this issue with us so we'll go ahead and do some quick intros so that you know who these guys are we'll start right here to my left with sam go ahead sam thank you caleb my name is sam mcclure i'm the founder of a firm called the adoption law firm and uh, we're a firm focused on advocating for orphan children abused neglected at-risk kids to be placed into permanent, loving, stable families. Okay, and Hayden? My name is Hayden Sizemore. I'm a solo practitioner here in Montgomery, Alabama. I practice in family law, criminal law, contracts, and a little bit of everything else. Okay, and we're going to go ahead and go to our other couch over here because, uh, you know, we're, we're super classy in the studio, which is really just my living room. So uh, the Clarks are here with us, all three of them. So Matt, go ahead and, and start us out. Hey guys, uh, my name is Matt Clark. I'm the executive director for the Alabama Center for Law and Liberty. Um, we're a fairly new conservative organization. If you've heard of the Alabama Policy Institute, we are its new litigation arm and I'm serving as its executive director. So um, I practice mostly in constitutional law, uh, focusing on cases that are you know, of interest to a conservative organization. And we're actually hoping to get in on this case that we're going to talk about, uh, filing a amicus brief with the U.S. Supreme Court, so we're excited. I'm Laura Clark. I am an attorney at Sasha Rear, and I practice family law primarily. I very clearly have an interest in dealing with abortion stuff because, well, I'm nine months pregnant with my first child, so. Yeah, we were actually joking earlier when we were at lunch. I was like, Laura, you cannot have your kid on my show. That's we're not doing that. I, you know, we haven't uh, written out the baby episode for this show yet, and so we just it's not going to be like that that episode of Friends. We just can't do that. I'm not doing it. I'm not delivering a baby on camera. It's just not going to happen. But anyway. <laughs> Uh, but seriously, thanks everybody for being here. We really do appreciate you being generous with your time. And so we're going to go ahead and dive straight into this. We're going to focus on, uh, at least for this, this first segment, uh, more specifically and practically 
the law that has come uh, beforehand. And Matt, I'd like you to actually start us out because, like you said, you filed an amicus brief. You're probably the most familiar with this case of anybody here at the table. So just give the audience a brief introduction to this case and, and what exactly it might mean. Sure. So what's going on here is that the state of Mississippi passed a law that bans abortions after 15 weeks. Now, some of you guys may be familiar with the framework that the U.S. Supreme Court is, has handed down, and it, it you know, Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey, um, they don't make abortion completely off limits. You know, for instance, the government can at times uh, regulate or even ban it, but where they've really drawn the magic line here saying this is off limits is at the point of viability. And viability means the baby can survive outside the womb on its own if it were to come. Um, so exactly where the viability line is, is a little hard to define, but as a general rule of thumb, um, states probably could not get away with banning abortions uh, before at least the 20-week mark. Um, so Mississippi decided to push the envelope here, and uh, the, the uh, abortion clinic in uh, Jackson, Mississippi sued and won in the lower courts. And then Mississippi, once it finally got up to the U.S. Supreme Court, asked them to take the case to ask them to reconsider uh, those precedents from Roe and Casey, saying that you can't uh, ban abortions before the viability point. And the Supreme Court agreed to consider that issue. So that's what's going on. As, as far as that goes, one thing that I did want to discuss today, and, and because you, know, you laid it out in, in very surgical, uh, practical fashion, um, what implications uh, could this have if Roe were overturned? And Hayden, we'll go to you first on this. Well, if you get into the meat of it, statistically, the last um, report from the CDC showed that I believe it was 92% of abortions were conducted prior to 13 weeks. This particular law bans abortions after 15 weeks. So if 92% of abortions occur before the 13-week mark, we're only looking at a small fraction of abortions that this law even affects. Mm -hmm. And then overall, I believe the statistic is somewhere around 32% of all abortions are conducted before nine weeks. Mm -hmm. So again, you're looking at this law, there's a lot of outrage saying that this would negatively impact reproductive rights and all this other stuff. But if you get statistically, this law actually only affects a fraction of abortions in the beginning. Mm -hmm. Because, like I said, only 8% of abortions happen after 13 weeks. And even then, less than 1% happen after the 20-week mark. So I think the biggest question here is whether or not viability is the appropriate standard. There are other states and a lot of the laws, and Matt, you may be more familiar with these, I believe like Arkansas, Utah, and several other states have enacted several laws that are not in effect yet. They're either on hold because of this case or because they have delayed effective dates. But in those case, or those laws in those states, they're looking at fetal heartbeat. Mm -hmm. Instead, they're, they're heartbeat laws and I know when I was pregnant with my first child, I initially was someone who I'd never had children. I didn't care. Um, I mean, I hate to say it that way, but I didn't. I'm like, I didn't have children. I didn't have an opinion about abortion. And it wasn't until I was actually in the doctor's office and at five weeks, I heard this child's heartbeat and that heartbeat was distinct from my own. So 
then I started having the realization of, okay, this is real. Now, you know, there is a, a, a life separate from my own that is growing inside of me. So I agree with the heartbeat laws. And, but statistically, you just have to look at it, the fact that this particular law doesn't even impact majority of abortions. Mm. And so I don't mm -hmm. think that its ramifications are ex as extreme as they've been portrayed. Yeah, I think that that's fair, although I think that especially with this issue, and this is true for the pro-life and the pro-choice side, any movement either way is seen as a really big deal because of how, you know, central to the each of the movements that this issue really is. And so, um, you know, you're 100% right on the practical front that even if uh, Mississippi's law were upheld, this is talking about one state and talking about less than 8% of abortions even in that one state. But overall, I think that everybody's scared to give even an inch because they see it as a gateway to getting into something that is more serious. And, and with this, I don't think that it's likely, but there is a chance that the high court could rule that this means that a state can just full out ban abortion if they want to. I mean, that, that is a possibility at least. I think that's the reason people are all up in the air about it. I agree with your, your uh, your analysis there absolutely i'm just saying that i think that that's the reason that both sides tend to you know pick up the battle axes as soon as anything on this uh this you know issue comes forth at all um laura one thing that i'd like for you to talk about since you're uh, very clearly great with child yeah. uh <laughs> yeah uh since since that's the kind of boat that you're in right now um i was going to ask about sort of your experience with this. And I, I know that you have, um, you know, you were telling me at lunch earlier today, actually, about uh, seeing your kid with the ultrasound. And, and I was actually doing a monologue just recently uh, on my Daily Dose of Stupid with Chris Cuomo talking about how he's saying that uh, conservatives and people on the pro-life side are scared of the science and don't want to talk about the science, to which I immediately responded, well, why is it that people on the left are against laws that would have that would require women to see an ultrasound before they're born? Because statistics show that when a woman actually sees her child in the womb, there's a very low chance that she's going to abortion. I believe only uh, like one in five women that after they if they were considering abortion after they see their ultrasound, only one in five women actually goes through with the abortion. And so, if you could just kind of talk to that. Uh, for a moment. Yeah, I, I think that's understandable. Um, you know, for me, we found out when I was, I think, five weeks pregnant. And not long after I had our appointment, um, it took them a little, they didn't do my, uh, they didn't do a heartbeat immediately. They waited a little bit to do that, but they did an ultrasound, I think, at eight weeks. And, uh, you know, aside from the first bit of discomfort that came from that, uh, when we first saw him on the screen, he looked like a little gummy bear and it was like the most adorable little gummy bear I've ever seen in my life. Just, you know, resting inside of me. And I think my first reaction was like, that's inside of me. There's something there. And I, like, I knew I was pregnant, but I didn't know until I saw him. And it was a whole nother world for me at that point of, yeah, this is not, it's like, you know, deep down, you know, this is not you. This is not yours, uh, and since it's not, this is not my organ, I don't have a gummy bear that's like attached to me now. Obviously he's a very big gummy bear now, but he is his own Super person. Yeah, <laughs> he's a gummy bear. Some, some people call our kids nugget or peanut. 
<laughs> for a little bit. Go a little dictator nugget. Yeah. But he's got his own yeah. Yeah, little personality. I mean, everything that he would do outside of the womb is what he's doing right now. And that's been true ever since our first ultrasound with him. In <clears throat> uh, that, you know, as I progressed through my pregnancy, that was something I began to understand very quickly because. You know, I can sense his moods. If he's like right now, he's a little feisty. Um, he doesn't like that I have spicy food. He's, he's a little salty about that. But he, uh, you know, so you, you see a little bit of him come out every once in a while. I was talking to you at lunch about how um, he really seems like thunderstruck by ACDC. It's like <laughs> his favorite. Mm -hmm. So he gets like really excited about that. He's moving around. He doesn't do that with anything else. Wow. So, cool <laughs> Yeah, I know, right? I'd, I'd love to play that right now. I really would, but, you know, copyright issues. ACDC would probably not be thrilled with me playing their song without paying them for that. But... I don't think I'd be thrilled. I don't like him around that much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Laura, like I, I'm going to reiterate again, you can't give birth on my show. We're just not doing that. But anyway, <laughs> but no, I, I appreciate you sharing that experience. And uh, one thing that, that I think that sometimes gets overlooked is we often when talking about this issue will divide up into just really two options and we and we treat it as though there's this dichotomy going on uh, between the mother either has to give birth and raise the kid for 18 years or she gets an abortion and those are the only two options but there's actually five options and, and you know i could i've gone through those many times on the show but one of those options that a lot of people just kind of ignore when talking about this is adoption i know that's your field of expertise sam so uh if you have you ever handled adoptions where abortion was an issue and the mom changed her mind or yeah yeah so i have four children my nine-year-old son is kind of a witty guy so if i'm a you know if i'm cooking breakfast to have a tendency to say the only reason you did that is because and they'll say something sassy you want mom to follow up the only so the only reason i care about pro-life is because i want more adoption business <laughs> it's part of my grand master plan for uh to take over the world thinking uh, um yes so yes 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 adoption yeah absolutely it's um you know, I, I think I think a great starting point to just try to land the plane and think about this issue is to remember. I know we're we're all thinking about we're talking about the uh, abortion issue kind of clinically here, but to remember, man, the world is broken. Just the world's mm -hmm. super broken. I mean, since the snake entered the garden and deceived Eve and Adam followed, uh, the, the world's been broken. And so, um, adoption exists because of broken brokenness and um, so uh, adoption is a beautiful thing but I think whether it's the pro-life issue or um, you know parents have a substance abuse issue or uh, whatever the whatever the brokenness that leads people to that place where they can't parent their child I think I think we got to land that plane starting with compassion to people in that mm -hmm. situation um, and that that really there's only three options is we either turn in repentance to Christ and trust in him for our identity, our salvation, our, you know, everything that we've ever done in his record, or we go deeper into the darkness, we harden our hearts, or we maybe we medicate ourselves so we can't listen to our conscience inside of us, uh, telling us, you, you know, you did something wrong. So 
Christ redeems all of us from incredible, um, incredible mistakes where we miss the mark. And if, if Roe v. Wade did anything, I think it it legalized a new industry where people could for profit offer um, a quick gut reaction solution to a problem. Uh, you know, the, the, the abortion clinic in Tuscaloosa, for example, mm -hmm. I think in 2017, their revenue was like $2.3 million. They, on average, did 13 abortions a day. Um, it's a profitable industry. I mean, in reality, think about it. If the U.S. Supreme Court said tomorrow we are going to legitimize a new industry where um, businesses can um, uh, tag, capture, and drown your teenager, as awful as that hypothetical sounds, if society's moral compass were such that that, that was a, a legitimate mm -hmm. solution to the problem of cranky teenagers, um, that would probably be a pretty profitable industry. Yeah, and I think it, it's unfortunate, but uh, even though we have been talking about it very clinically, the thing that tends to resonate with people, especially voters, is usually not the scientific argument or the rational argument. It's usually the, the anecdotal or the emotional argument. And I think that, frankly, conservatives have done a pretty poor job of addressing that. And, and part of it is inherent to the issue itself, right? Because obviously unborn children can't take the stand in a session of Congress and speak for themselves. Like that's not a thing they can do. And so if it were in the hypothetical that you're talking about where it was teenagers, it'd be a lot harder to justify that because we could have teenagers actually come up and speak for themselves. Right. But the unborn can't do that. And so I think that's part of the reason. And, you know, the left is very good at trotting out these uh, terrible sob stories about women that have been uh, raped or, or something terrible has happened from that. And, you know, you would have to be a monster not to sympathize with those people. But at the same time, the solution is not to take out the evil that has been done and recompense that and, and try to, you know, resolve that by injuring another person. Yeah, you know, I think the case in front of the U.S. Supreme Court now, I think I agree with you in the sense that I don't think it has the potential to overturn Roe v. Wade. I don't think, but I think this could be a reduce the sandbox that mm -hmm. this industry can operate in. One of the uh, adoption agencies that we partner with had double, the first six months of 2020, had twice as many children placed for adoption as they did the entire previous year. Um, and, and I think part of that roots back to a few weeks when abortion industries were closed because of COVID-related shutdowns. Just a few weeks that um, just this one agency, 30 more children in six, six months were placed for adoption. So um, you got the statistics that you, that you mentioned, um, that, that may be the norm, but I think, man, like, children every one child is valuable and if 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 one less child loses their life to if one less mother is is um is lured into making a decision that she's going to regret for the rest of her life what what a huge what an eternal win uh that is and you know i think so I, I, you know i don't know that that the you know making just the right legal argument is is you know some people need to be thinking about just the right legal argument and, mm -hmm. and our firm is is helping with the class action with all pre-born african-american children in alabama and we're thinking really deep about you know about how the abortion industry historically has targeted african-american children and how they systemically continue to do that but it you know it's it's a spiritual war it's a 
it's a, you know, the, in, in a very real sense, there's a good and evil, there's a snake, and he, he knows he's going to get his head crushed by the offspring of the woman, ultimately Christ. And, and so I think his agenda is always to, to gobble up the offspring of the woman. He hates image bearers. Um, and so I think, I think we have to keep that in mind with what we're dealing with now. The man-stealing institution mm -hmm. that helped to economically build our country, you know, was one of those evils. And, you know, the U.S. Supreme Court did a 180, right, in the Dred Scott opinion when it overturned that. So we don't need to lose hope. People, we still need to be pressing into making those arguments. We need to be trying to get the right people elected. We need to, you know, if you have those convictions, I think you need to lean into being an elected magistrate um, that can assert your office to, to try to do justice and protect children. Um, but so I, so I think it really is a, an all hands on deck thing that if, if the, the injustice and the, and the, the blood that runs through the streets with the you know, 40 million children who've lost their lives to this profitable industry cries out to you, then there's so many ways to, to, to mobilize into action. Yeah. And I, I want people to understand too, I think that there are two fronts on this and I think you're absolutely right on that, Sam, there is the side of it that is concerned about having access to the system with having people elected that sort of have the, the right ideas on this particular issue. But then there's the other side of it in trying to drive public opinion. And, and one thing that polls have shown over and over is that typically what happens is the elected officials tend to trend towards where public opinion is. And so I do think that there's two fronts on this that we have to be concerned about. We have to be concerned about sort of uh, how do we get people, the American people on board with that idea? And then also, how do we get um, the the average uh, elected official, whether it be in the state house in Washington, wherever that is, on board with that idea as well? And it, it's, you know, it's, it's a multifaceted problem and there's a lot of different ways uh, that you could go with it. I'd kind of like to open this up uh, to everybody, though, when it comes to this particular case, and I know that uh, I'm the least legally qualified person in the room, everybody else in here is a lawyer, <laughs> um, but uh, just to kind of get your ideas, what do you think the odds are that this case actually does uh, weaken Roe or Casey, overturn it? Like, what, what do you think that the justices are going to decide on this one? I think their most likely outcome to me is that they're going to create a different standard. Because I think, I was reading over Planned Parenthood versus Casey today, and one of their big things is they like to save judicial face. Um, and that's by doing, it, they follow what's called sorry decisis, which again is just saving judicial face. That's what that really is. Right. Um, but anyways, I think they're going to probably uphold the right to right to abortion. Uh, but I think they will change the standard, which is mostly what they're asking for in this case anyway. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know what they'll replace it with, because I think what Mississippi is asking for is not a good standard to replace it with. Um, but I do think most likely outcome is you're just going to see a different standard put in place. Do you think, do you think, though, do you think it's possible that the U.S. Supreme Court makes the standard whatever the state wants to do on this issue will be the law of the land and we're going to the federal government's going to step down from trying to 
um, superintend over the state sovereignty in this in this area? Do you think that's a possibility? That would be an effectual return of Roe, since Roe just took that out of the state's hand. I was looking at like before Roe, uh, 30 states have banned abortion outright, 16 of them banned it, except in certain certain exceptions, and three of them allowed them altogether. Um, so that, I think if you did do that, then we'd be going back to those laws. Um, but I don't think, I don't think they'll do that. I, honestly, because again, it would they would probably want to put something in place if the, the states had to have some allowance of abortion, some. And I wonder if they would be okay with a heartbeat idea. I really do. I, kind of, I think that might be the best standard yeah. they might go with. I think the heartbeat bill is pretty hard to argue against. And part of the reason is because the average person, uh, because, you know, the, the media always tries to paint it as though I was, I was watching a segment on this last night, actually, where they were saying, well, 68% of the people support Roe staying in place. Okay, but they don't really, un first of all, I don't think they all understand what that means. But second of all, if you look at other polling where it gets more specific, only about 13% of the American population actually believes in abortion at any time for any reason. It, that's a pretty tiny minority. Almost everybody uh, is in favor of something close to the heartbeat standard. And so I think if you went with something like the heartbeat bill, because that is something that A, connects with people, people understand what it means, they can look at it and it just makes sense to them. Okay, well, a person's heart is beating, they're alive. I mean, they when a person's heart stops beating, they cease to be alive. And so I think that's an easy thing for them to digest. And then the there's the emotional connection to it of, well, you know, it's a very big moment. And I'm sure Laura and Matt, you guys can attest to this recently. Um, and, and Sam, I'm sure that you've had issues or you've had women that, that kind of feel the same way that um, when women have that connection of actually hearing their child's heartbeat, it does create a connection between them and the kid. And so I, I think that that's something that would be very, very relatable uh, to people. And I think that the average American could probably get on board with that. I know that doesn't matter much when we're talking about a Supreme Court precedent, but I, I really do think that that's something that would have pretty high public approval if that became their decision. Well, I, I think you're on something, Caleb, here. And, and in addition to the strictly um, you know, legal issues that are going to arise from this case, the, the Supreme Court is going to have to try to figure out something that um, not only uh, pushes the law in the right direction, but is, is going to be popular with the voters because Right now, you know, the Democrats have, um, you know, the votes needed to pack the Supreme Court if, if Joe Manchin were to cave. Um, and maybe, uh, what was the senator out of Arizona who's a Democrat, but kind of moderate, Kristen, whatever her last name is. But I think those two have expressed um, uh, problems with packing the court. But if the Supreme Court came out with a decision like that and Biden and congressional Democrats said, all right, we told you not to cross the line with Roe, you did it, so now we're going to pack the court. If, if they could come out with a decision like that that's popular with the voters, such as, you know, a heartbeat law or something, I think the public outcry against the Democrats would probably be enough to really make them think about whether this is the hill they want to die on or not. Because um, the, the backlash they could get from that in the 2022 elections, you know, could uh, give a strong majority to, you know, Republicans in both houses of Congress. So, you know, the, the Supreme Court really should not be in the business of political calculus, but sometimes that is the reality. And unfortunately it is right now because Democrats are saber rattling and, and threatening, to, threatening to obliterate them and change the court as we know it. 
So, I don't mm -hmm. know, something like a heartbeat law might be a way that the Supreme Court can take a step in the right direction and, uh, you know, also keep only non-justices on the court. I mean, it's a real issue, too, because they they're actually threatening it. And this is not the first time in our history that we've had that happen. Um, the Constitutional Revolution of 1937, I think the quote was, vote in time, save nine. And it's because if you hadn't, if the Supreme Court hadn't ruled in FDR's favor, FDR was that back court. Right. And uh, interestingly enough, the person that said that that was a stupid idea, even though it was legally permissible, was Senator Joe Biden. So that'll be interesting to see how he reacts to that. I've shown that clip on my show before where Joe Biden, I think back in like the late 80s, early 90s, took the stand and said, look, FDR wasn't doing anything wrong, but it was, quote, a boneheaded idea. And so it'll be interesting to see, especially since he's been sort of hinting that he'd be open to that uh, if he's going to completely reverse himself, as he's done many times in the past. But um, one thing that you brought up, Matt, it's I know that you and I are both sort of hunting for the same thing. We both want conception to be the line. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I do see what you're saying, that there might be some political calculus that it would be easier to justify. Now, I'd rather them just go for broke. I think that that's probably what Clarence Thomas is going to do. That's what we're going to urge him to do in our break, too. Sure. I don't know if we're going to go for it, but we're going to take a shot. Yeah, and, and it'd be great. Um, but I can't see that happening. And this is one thing that I'm scared of that I brought up. And, and any of you are free to comment on this and tell me if you think I'm, I'm correct or I'm missing the mark here. I'm afraid what's going to happen is we're going to have a 5-4 decision with Kavanaugh siding with the conservatives on the court to in some way curtail abortion. And then what we're going to have is Roberts joins that side, switches sides, even though he was going to vote with his fellow liberal justices and uh, winds up actually bringing the decision more his way to where it effectively does nothing. That's one thing I'm concerned about. Yeah, uh, the Wall Street Journal came out with an article today um, talking about that kind of dynamic on the, on the court. Now that there's a, a six um, justice conservative majority, um, you know, ordinarily Chief Justice Roberts would have been the critical fifth vote in that block. And so he, he had a lot of power to steer things the way that he wanted. Um, now that there's still five conservatives without him, you know, if he's on the other side, Clarence Thomas gets to call the shots. And that is, I think, what everybody in this room would really, really want. Almost, I would almost just rather us unpack the court and just have Clarence Thomas decide all the cases. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Constitution actually only requires one Chief Justice on the Supreme Court to fire everybody except Thomas. Yeah, I'd, I'd be fine with that. Just impeach them all. So, sorry, Amy Coney Barrett and Gorsuch. I love you, but... Thomas is the solid one, so. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I see what you're saying. Because of that dynamic, and for those watching that are not familiar with how the Supreme Court does things, is after the hero oral argument in the case, they go back to their conference room and they take an initial vote of which way they're going to go. And whoever is the senior most justice among the, the winning faction gets to decide who writes the opinion. So, um you know, to kind of go into what, what Caleb was talking about, um, the, the Chief Justice, even though he hasn't been there as long as Clarence Thomas has, is always considered the most senior because he's, he's a Chief Justice. And if you've been following the news, you know that Roberts, I mean, he is conservative-leaning. Back in the 80s and early 90s, he was a conservative rock star. He would have been a fantastic pick for a, a federal judgeship back then because he, he was really killing it. But in his role as Chief Justice, he, he very much desires to protect 
the Supreme Court's image. He doesn't want them seen as partisan or conservative, and I think a lot of the times that's why he winds up siding with the liberals and making it, or, or, or siding with conservatives, but writing a very narrow decision. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Justice Thomas, on the other hand, who's next in line for seniority, is really more like, I don't care what precedent says, right is right, wrong is wrong, we're gonna go with what's right. Um, so you're right, Roberts could decide you know, he, he and Kavanaugh can be the critical votes here, and they, they could wind up coming out with a favorable decision, but on narrow grounds, in order to avoid, you know, throwing Bro out completely. So it's a possibility. We'll, we'll see what happens. Yeah, I mean, I could, I could see that taking place. Unfortunately, that's probably a, a scenario that if they do weaken Roe, and frankly, I think the most likely one is nothing happens, sadly. But um, if there is some kind of movement based on this case, I think that what probably winds up happening is J Justice Roberts adds himself to the prevailing side and then weakens the opinion in some way. I'd hate to see that happen, but I'd a lot rather have a really good 5-4 decision than a kind of wishy-washy 6-3. What is the process for how the Supreme Court decides whether to, do they vote, we're going to take this case or not, or this is the kind of case. Like, I just, I feel like without knowing the process, Matt, you may know, like, they wouldn't take the case unless they wanted to, hey, this is the case we're looking for. Like, why wouldn't they just turn yeah. it away if they're going to deny it? Yeah, so, so the rule is that um, you have to have four justices that agree to hear a case. Um, I personally believe, yeah, I'm coming out with an article in the Regent Law Review um, arguing that the six conservative-leaning justices, including Roberts, do want to see Roe overturned. And I tried to discuss some of the obstacles that, you know, they, you know, they could face to get there and, and how to deal with them. Um, but, you know, if, if I'm right, and if these six justices believe that Roe is wrongly decided and it needs to go, you better hope that before they cast their votes to hear this case, that they had done vote counting behind the scenes, making sure that there's at least a fair chance that if they decided to take this case, it was going to come out, you know, they'd have at least five justices voting their way on it. Because um, otherwise, I think it's a pretty reckless thing to do to agree to take this case and then have it completely backfire by going the other way. Yeah, the last thing you want to do is to have a court that would actually strengthen the Casey standard, which... Uh, Honestly, I think it would kind of be difficult to do at this point. I can't, I can't imagine legally how they would strengthen it. Um, I, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, or maybe I'm just not creative enough to think of that. But, but either way, um, could I just pivot on? Yeah, go ahead. Question. Jump in, jump in. So, so, I know we're here talking about this U.S. Supreme Court case, but in some ways, the, the, those actions are so distant from the average citizen. Mm -hmm. You know, who gets appointed to the the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, so in, in Alabama, the governor just signed the medical marijuana bill, right? Right. Which, it, you know, if Alabama implements that, it is a um, it is a defiance of federal law. Sure. It is a it is the the magistrate, the state, saying to the federal government, you don't have, you know, we did not delegate the right to the federal government to tell us what kind of plants to grow. Exactly. Just those kind of plants, um, and so. I would love to hear your thoughts on, uh, on a state level, what can state actors do? You know, just like Colorado said, we're going to nullify, we're going to disregard federal law and grow marijuana. So it's actually, you know, marijuana is still illegal if, mm -hmm. if federal law is the law of the land. So, you know, medical marijuana is, is an illegal act, yet the states are saying we're going to do it anyway. Do you think there's, there's a foothold for the states 
governors, attorney generals, whatever the state actor is, to do the same thing on the pro-life issue to say, in you know, Mississippi, to say, well, we passed a law that says that you can't have an abortion after 15 weeks. And so just like medical marijuana, we're going to ignore the federal government on that. Well, actually, I think that they can. And um, I'm sure that there will be a ton of legal comments in the comment section on this video that disagree with me on this. But I've always asserted that as far as the states go, the states absolutely have the right, because I'm a big believer in the Tenth Amendment, that if the Constitution does not specifically say the federal government has this authority, then the states can do whatever they want on it. Um, as James Madison, who actually helped write the Bill of Rights, uh, said that the uh, powers of the federal government are limited and finite, whereas the powers of the state are unlimited and innumerable. Um, that's a paraphrase, not an exact quote, but it's pretty close. Um, anyway, so as far as the medical marijuana, I think that there's a little bit stronger case if someone were to actually come down on the state of Alabama or the state of Colorado or Washington or any of the other places where it's been legalized, and here's why. Uh, you can make a very clear-cut argument that says, look, the federal government has no right to basically look at a substance and say, we don't allow that substance. And if you want proof of that, look at proration. Like, the federal government of the time felt they needed a constitutional amendment, and they were right, to actually be able to limit a substance nationwide. And then it took another constitutional amendment to repeal it. But then somewhere down the road, a bunch of federal lawyers and elected officials just decided, no, oh, we don't need one. And so you have a, a very clear precedent earlier on. The reason that abortion is a little bit trickier is because the way that Roe was originally decided was it was derived from a case that was derived from a uh, understood right in the Ninth Amendment. And so it's a little, I know that that's super complicated and that's a, a, leap, a mental leap that evil can evil couldn't make, but that's how they justified it. And so because of that, they're making the issue, they're making the case that the right to privacy then led to a right to abortion. So it's in the constitution, it's just kind of implied there, even though no sane person would believe that to be the case. But th that's the reason it's a little bit trickier than medical marijuana. Uh, but not to get off topic here, um, a, a great example of how much your, uh, how conservative your re elected representatives in Alabama are, they're perfectly fine with defying federal law when it comes to medical marijuana. They're not okay with doing it with the Second Amendment or with abortion because they had the opportunity to make the state a sanctuary state for the Second Amendment this round. They just let it die on the vine, never passed it. And then with abortion, they actually did pass it. It is law, but nobody wants to enforce it. It is on the books right now. There is a ban in the state of Alabama on all abortions. That got signed into law, I believe, two years ago. Mm -hmm. um, but despite that, Governor Ivey and uh, the law enforcement officials of the state of Alabama have said, yeah, well, it's illegal, but we're not going to enforce it right now. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, then what, what good was passing the law? What, what, why, why do that? And, and their rationale is the second that it's allowed by the federal government, then it will just automatic, they don't have to pass another ban on it at that point, that it will just be as soon as the Supreme Court lets up on that, then abortion will be banned in Alabama, which I guess is a good thing. But at the end of the day, it, it, it's almost like they're passing a law that they deem outside their jurisdiction, which doesn't make any sense. But 
Um, if anybody wants to react to that, <laughs> I know. Uh, I think enforcement is your issue across the board. Oh, for sure. Whether it's with medical marijuana or with a ban on abortions, enforcement is going to be the issue. Mm -hmm. Because realistically, in Colorado, if the federal government wanted to come in and shut it down, they could. Um, but at the same time, then we would get into a discussion of public actors versus private actors and who can do what constitutionally. Um, and so I think then we would definitely get into some 10th and 11th Amendment issues um, there. But ultimately, it's an issue of enforcement um, as far as, and we've seen a lot of that over the last year with COVID, mm -hmm. with the state government going in and shutting down private businesses because these abortion clinics are by virtue of their establishment private businesses. So we've seen a lot of that within the last year. And I think we've seen a lot of the state's willingness to interfere with privately owned businesses. Mm -hmm. But we have to examine what what are our limits? Where where What's our stopping point? No, I actually made exactly that point uh, during the, the pandemic when apparently the abortion clinics were still running. And I said, I, you know, people of Alabama, I, I know that we're a red state, arguably the reddest one in the country, but I want you to think about this. Our elected officials said abortion clinics, those are essential. Those have to keep running. But if you dare gather with more than 10 people in your church, we will show up and we will take you to jail. That was their standard. Yeah, that, in, in fairness, because I, I got to jump in and be part of a case involving the uh, abortion clinics here, just filing an amicus brief in support of the state. The, the state did... Take, take that ruling up on appeal and try to get it to overturn. But when they got to the 11th Circuit, they got three judges that were appointed by Democrat uh, presidents that were very, very liberal. So they were quick to come to the defense of the uh, abortion clinics. And mm -hmm. at that point, the state you know, was probably just like, okay, well, we tried, but I, I don't know what more we, we can do here. So they, they did allow the abortion clinics to operate, but it was under a direct court order that they tried to get appealed, and it unfortunately didn't work out. So I, I will say that in the state's defense, they did try. But you, we, we were still left with a very absurd conclusion saying, hang on a minute. So in, in, in a worldwide pandemic that everybody's afraid is going to be the new black plague, we're shutting down businesses because we don't want people to die. But the one business that can remain open is the business that causes people to die. That makes sense. You know? it's right. It's, it, and that's just an absurdity that we have seen play out over and over again, even long before this pandemic. Um, as I've always said, a successful abortion results in a death every single time. Yeah. And for whatever reason, we ignore that fact. A few years ago, the, the Supreme Court took an abortion case, um, Whole Woman's Health versus Hellerstedt, which was a very narrow um, victory for uh, the pro-abortion side. And Justice Breyer wrote the opinion, and I'm trying to, I remember when the decision came out, I was trying to read over it. Breyer, I, I think, is, is the most pleased with himself out of all the justices on the court. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Yeah, yeah. He, he really does think he's like the law professor of the United States, but he's going through, you know, trying to explore all these different aspects of abortion. And then one line he dropped in there was that abortions rarely result in deaths. I'm like, they result in deaths every time. That's what makes them abortions. How do you miss this, you know? It's, it, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting worldview. Um, one of our cases right now is suing all the abortion clinics in Alabama with the class being all, all African-American children in the womb. And the, the out-of-the-gate argument that all, I think, eight attorneys for the abortion industry they make is, is that 
the court should dismiss the case right out of the bat without hearing any of the merits because there's no injury. To have standing to, um, to litigate a case, there has to be injury. There's no injury here. I know 80, 80 African-American children per week in Alabama lose their life to abortion. African-Americans make up 27% of the population, but are 63% of abortions. And, and, and that's the worldview that there, there is no injury. And, and I think, you know, we might root that misconception into this legal positivism movement that started in some of the Ivy League law schools in the 1940s, you know, mm -hmm. time Marxism in there. But basically that all the legal positivism or legal realism would say, in essence, that the only thing that the law is, is what man writes on paper. There is no higher judge, no higher law. There's um, the only, and so I think there was a guy named Emperor Justinian, 500 AD. Mm -hmm. He wrote Justinian's Institutes, which is still used as the bedrock for the civil legal system. You know, think about France. And his opening line is to define justice and, and I think a lot of a lot of people in the legal field matriculate through their legal education without ever thinking about what is justice, mm -hmm. which is kind of bizarre. You know, in the medical field, surely you would think about what is healing, what's the goal we're trying, what's the target we're trying to hit. But Justinian said that justice is the steadfast resolve to give every person their due, the steadfast resolve to give every person their due. So you really he brings up basically two species of injustice. One is you're arguing over what people are due. I signed a contract to lease an apartment for 1500 but I only want to pay 900 because there's a leak in the roof. We're arguing about what we're due. The other species of injustice is to say that that human being over there is not a person. That's okay, it's a human being, but that human being is not a person. Therefore, it's not a person as the man that I see in the mirror. Therefore, they're not do the same thing as the man in the mirror. So to deny a certain class of humans this personhood status, and you saw that, that you can you can historically study the systematic progression of Nazi Germany and how they how they uh, their PR campaign started tr treating people from a Jewish background to the American man stealing movement, like the human conscience. You know, if you were participating in that you had to solve your conscience with some kind of scientific rhetoric that um, humans born on the African continent weren't, in fact, persons. And so I think that's the essence of the species of injustice that we have is, is really there's no scientific, every scientific textbook says that a human, that uh, what's happening inside of Laura's body right now is from the moment of conception, a human being is there and is created. The argument is over whether that human being is a person that has legal rights, that um, whether there is an injury in fact when they are um, surgically or chemically, um, their, their life is ended. Well, and the thing is, to with, with the handful of probably some exceptions that are, are just so depraved and so far gone that don't understand that, the truth is, even the people on the other side of the argument know that. Even the, I, I was doing a segment uh, the other night on Chris Cuomo and he didn't even realize he did it. He ended his segment with saying, I guess Republicans only care about saving human lives in the womb. I said, did you, did you catch that? He just said, save human lives. He knows it. He's on the opposite side, but he knows that's a human life. He understands that. He's just arguing that we should be able to do with what we want. And that's exactly what you're talking about, Sam. If, if you're looking through the historical record, there has been a, a long, tragic history of human beings 
being able to marginalize and abuse one another and justifying it by saying this particular class of person, whether it's race, nationality, whatever it may be, is not a human like I'm a human. Maybe they're a human in some sense, but they're not really a person the way that I am. And that's how it starts. And in Germany, the first people that they came for, everybody thinks of the Jews. Well, that's not the first people they came for. The first people they came for were babies with deformities. Uh, the very first victim of Nazism was Baby Nauer, who was a severely disabled child. And they, they cloaked it in the, the messaging of compassion. They, they, they went to this baby's parents and they had the Fuhrer's own doctor, Adolf Hitler's own doctor, looked at this baby and determined there's no way he's going to have any quality of life. And so what we've got to do is we've got to, it's just the compassionate thing to do to kill the baby. And if you've ever heard of the black stork, that was a propaganda video that the Nazis put out there where the doctor actually talked to the parents of a child that was severely deformed. And uh, they wound up killing the baby. And as the doctor put his hand, I'm not kidding. They filmed this and, and put it out this way. He put his pillow uh, his hand in his pillow over the baby's face to smother it to death. Afterward, Jesus comes into the room and comforts the doctor and the nurse that just went through that procedure. That's how depraved these people are. And that's the eugenics movement. I mean, mm -hmm. the, the eugenics is we want to get rid of the, quote, undesirables from society, the useless eaters. And that is, you know, the, the, that same river is what started the, the abortion industry in Alabama, Margaret Sanger, uh, Alan Guttmacher, it was, you know, they, the, the Negro project was that we need to, uh, I think Margaret Sanger said, we don't want to let word get out that our primary agenda is to eradicate the Negro population from society. And, and so they placed their clinics in predominantly African-American neighborhoods. It's still the trend today. The systematic, um, in, in, in New York City, there are more African-American children whose lives end from abortion Mm -hmm. than are born alive. It, 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 it's a profound swept under the rug. This is the, the fundamental evil agenda of the abortion industry. Well, and there is that single line that goes through it too, because you, you think about the analogy that I just gave with the Black Stork movie. The, the Democrats today are still doing that. Chelsea Clinton, I remember a clip from about a year ago, said that I am pro-abortion because I'm a Christian. That's how they think of it. Um, and it. And it really is the same kind of ancient evil that we've been dealing with since the beginning of time. I mean, you, you go back to Molech worship where children, they were sacrificing their children for convenience. Yeah. They wanted a good harvest and a good rain. And so they felt if they sacrificed their children to these gods, they would give them that. And so this is really something that the human race has been struggling with and fighting with just about since our inception. And so it, it's sad to say, but this is not really a new problem. And, and we're seeing that same line of evil undercut all of human history. And they're not really even considering the consequences of the ones that they're, they're saying they're protecting. Because for women, and I've talked to a lot of women who have had abortions, uh, for a little while I took on a project trying to talk to these women. Yep. And uh, anyway, over and over what I heard was from women who uh, who who've had abortions within five years of having the abortion, that's when it starts hitting what happens. Mm -hmm. And they suffer severe mental trauma from that. 
And there are actually some places here on Montgomery that, um, that help these women with counseling through that. But I mean, these are the women that end up with anxiety, depression, suicidal tendencies, all of that because of an abortion. And uh, they, they grieve for their children, but they feel like they don't have a right to grieve. And so they're constantly in this battle with themselves. I mean, abortion is not compassionate even for the woman having it. Right, and that's one thing that I do think that a lot of people miss out on. And, and by the way, we want to thank Sam for being with us. He had to had to duck out real quick, but um, they always try to cloak it in the language of compassion. And I think the reason is it's a a very honest, evil but honest reaction to the fact that they understand what they're doing is actually the furthest thing from compassion, and so they instinctively know that the the messaging has to be that we're doing this out of compassion, because if it didn't, it would be too obvious to anybody else that that's not really what they're about. I think that that's the issue. Um, because, you know, there are people that will try to make the compassionate arguments, but when we're talking about issues where you do genuinely feel for the woman involved, where it's, you know, somebody that was, uh, you know, severely addicted to drugs or has a baby with a severe deficiency, or uh, it's a case of rape. I mean, that's horrible. But that's less than 2% of all abortions in America. Mm -hmm. And what they try to do is they try to take those specific stories that pull on your heartstrings and should. I mean, the right response to that is not murdering their ki kids. But those things understandably have an emotional appeal to the person. But what they do is they try to take that less than 2% of all abortions and use that to justify the other 98%, which are just elective. And, the, and it doesn't make any sense, but that's the way that they... They try to do it. They get their foot in the, whore, the, the door with that one exception, and then they try to use that to justify it across the board when the rest of the 98% are really just for convenience. Well, like speaking as a woman with a high-risk pregnancy, and I am, I'm high-risk, um, you know, if I had gotten from the doctor that, you know, I needed to abort my kid or die, I would die 100% of the time. I would, I've not met this child yet, but I feel very strongly about that. Um, and, and, you know, I have my mother-in-law, I mean, told her she's miscarrying. You need to abort this child because if you don't, then he's not going to have any quality of life. He's going to, he won't be able to walk. He's not going to be able to talk. It's just going to be nothing, really. And here's it's my husband, like, you know, having a child of his own. I mean... I don't think people realize just how insane some of these arguments are. And I think, too, most women would agree with exactly what I'm telling you. I would die before I did something to my child. Well, and I think that we're going to get into some contentious waters here, but I think that's the reason that we're here is to have some of these difficult conversations. I can actually see, and you guys correct me if I'm wrong, I can see the argument from a strictly legal perspective for if there's a medical emergency allowing for an abortion. Now that's even way rarer than the situation we just talked about, the 2%. It doesn't even make up a half of a percent where it's talking about life of the mother because here's the thing. In almost every medical situation, and I've, I've read different articles by gynecologists and OBGYNs on specifically this, it's almost never in the mother's benefit to undergo an abortion. It, it's almost always better to induce labor, get the child out of her, and then worry about her health. And so there's 
you know, in, in almost every emergency medical situation, that's the right call anyway. But I'm just saying, theoretically, if there were a, an occasion where an abortion would save the mother's life, I can't see a moral justification for it, but I can see a legal justification for it because we're just, we're just concerned about preserving as much life as possible from the legal perspective. So I wanted to get y'all's reaction to that. Yeah, initially, you know, yeah, and this might not sound all that popular, but, you know, I, I, I agree with that. I think, you know, um, this dilemma was actually discussed in the main opinion of Roe when it was tracking the, the history of abortion law in America. How mm -hmm. um, Initially, you know, during the 19th century, when, you know, medical advances uh, led doctors to realize, oh, my gosh, human life begins at conception, uh, most states passed abortion bans, and then, you know, some of them, Alabama was one of them realizing, you know, there are very rare situations that arise where, you know, it's, it's going to cost the mother's life, and by the way, when that happens, the baby's going to die, too. So, based on that scenario, okay, we'll make an exception if, you know, the mother's, you know, if it's necessary to save the life of the mother. Um, fortunately, we've come even further with uh, medical treatment and stuff that, that makes those cases even more rare when they are there, there are before. So you're right, Caleb. I mean, we're not talking about you know even one percent. We're talking you know just just a fraction of a percent here where, where that happens. Um, so I you know I agree. I, I also think the way that our criminal law is set up. Um, it, it would, by default, protect the right for that to happen uh, if, if, if it was necessary to save the, right, the life of the mother. Um, now, I, I'm not a criminal law practitioner, so um, he may be able to speak to this better than I can. But a lot of the times, if you get charged with a crime, there is a, a freestanding defense of necessity. And this is not an excuse to break the law because you felt like you really had to, but like in cases of real necessity where the law says you can't do something, but then the dilemma presents itself where it's like, if I don't do this thing, I'm going to die. A lot of right. It's like, um, it's, it's like a law where if there was a law against swimming in a certain body of water, but then there's someone drowning, the person that dives in to save them is not culpable for that. Bingo. Yeah, that's, that, that's a good example. You're always great with thinking of examples on the spot. I'm <laughs> So <laughs> Thank to, you. <laughs> I think like for a full day before I can come up with a good analogy, but um, uh, but 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 yes, in situations like that, I think the criminal law, the way that it's set up, would probably even let the mother and the doctor off. Um, but you know, I think all of us here are fair is that we get to the day where we get the technology to where that. It, because of treatments that are available, that is never needed anymore. I think ultimately that's what we, what we all want. Well, and now you touched on this talking about the advancement of medical science. One thing that has been really interesting in the abortion debate so far has been the moving target of viability. Which, by the way, the fact that it's a moving target, I would argue, makes it a bad standard. Oh, yeah. But um, with the viability standard, it, it essentially states as, as long as the child can live outside the womb, then you can't, or at least you can, you can restrict abortion after that point. It doesn't say that you can't abort at that point. It says a state has the right to restrict an abortion up until the point where you couldn't have the child live outside the womb. But what's happening now is, and this is what's been so interesting, is our medical science is advancing so rapidly that the laws can't keep up with it. Mm -hmm. And we're going to get to the point not too long from now where virtually the viability question is not a question. Because we're able to keep even very, very early fetal lambs alive in an artificial womb now, uh, not exactly from the point of conception, but not far from it. Yeah. And so if that happens to where the technology advances to the point that 
you know, a two-week-old preemie, you know, something extremely early in the development process, could survive outside the womb, then the viability standard means nothing. Nailed it. Um, you know, I was reading over Mississippi's cert petition, and they brought up a point that was very, very similar to that, you know, as part of the reason to attack the viability standard right now. So I think tactically it was, it was a good move to raise that point, but they're saying, look, you know, we've already progressed more than we had in 1973 or 1992 and being able to save you know, the lives of more children. And it might not be very long yet until we get artificial wounds that can keep human babies alive, even you know, when they're um, quite that small. So you know, they, they use that as, as, as a reason to, to argue why the viability standard is, is arbitrary and, and bad. They, they also drew a lot on the writings of Alabama's very own Chief Justice Tom Parker, where he's gone out of his way to make those points for why the viability standard is not very workable. So uh, arguments like this, ju just by granting certiorari, it's proved it's already got the Supreme Court interested and intrigued in exploring those arguments. Well, and we spoke very favorably earlier about the heartbeat law and the ability for that to limit abortion. But, you know, like we said, the goal is actually getting it to where conception is the line. Yeah. And the reason I say that is because it is the only consistent line. Yes. Even the heartbeat bill, is as much of an improvement as I think that would be over the current standard is still not good enough because even though it's less of a moving target than the viability standard, it's still a moving target. Let's say you have a baby that has a fully developed heart, but the heart isn't functioning the way that it's supposed to. Is that baby less human than a baby that's younger than him that has a functioning heart just because he happens to be born with a heart deficiency? Now, Laura, you actually uh, you had a heart problem directly after you were born, didn't you? I was born with it, um, so probably in the womb I had it. Yeah, so, I mean, is Laura less of a person because her heart doesn't pump blood exactly the same way that mine does? Like, that, that's a silly standard. And so even though I think that... <laughs> I think that the heartbeat bill inherently is better just because it moves the line closer to conception, but as far as it being functionally correct, I, I think that there's several severe holds in that argument as well. Um, and, and I'm not saying that because I want to torpedo it. I'd rather it move to that. I'm just saying that when you really boil it down to its bare bones, the only standard that actually makes sense and is consistent across the board without exception is the line of conception. I think with the heartbeat bill, it's not necessarily you have to have a fully functioning heart, but it's that uh, you can hear a heartbeat. And I think they didn't do it with us because they didn't want to like damage the baby's brain with the equipment. Uh -huh. But I think you can get a heartbeat as early as six weeks. I mean, how, how, how far along were you with yours? Um, five, because we weren't, we weren't sure. Um, <laughs> and, um, I was just going in for a regular appointment. My doctor's like, um, so <laughs> there, there's a problem. And I'm like, what, what, what do you mean? And so that's how, how I found out, and it was a regular appointment, and I had no idea. I mean, obviously, we engage in activities that would give us a hint, but I had no idea that I was actually pregnant, and they did the scan because they're like, okay, well, you, you're definitely pregnant, but we need to figure out how pregnant you are. So I didn't realize this was a degree kind of thing. Yeah, you could be you kind of pregnant. Know. <laughs> you need to know how pregnant you are. So, how far along you Yes. <laughs> and so, because, I mean, you, you start talking about prenatal vitamins and, you know, whether you're healthy, blood work, all this other stuff. You know, whether you're high risk or, you know, there's so many things that go into the equation when you're pregnant. Mm -hmm. So, they did an ultrasound and they were like, okay, you know, that's five weeks and they're picking up a heart. 
feet at five weeks. My second child um, was eight weeks. And so, but I think just listening to some of the comments, one of the biggest issues is that we've always, for the most part, and I hate to use the word always, but I qualify that for the most part. Sure. That we've failed miserably legislating morality. Um, I think for me personally, if you go back to the scriptural context, we're told before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. So I think when we talk about the disabled child or the deformed child or the child that's going to have some type of disability, he knew that. And you were given that child for a reason. Just for so long we've had, and now the tables have turned to where now we don't look at Down syndrome as, as much of a disability as it used to be. Mm -hmm. um, now we're like, oh, well, these children despite this syndrome, can have long, healthy, fulfilling lives. Um, and so I think we have to look at those different issues as to the fact of you were supposed to get that child. Um, now, my children are five and six now, mm -hmm. and they, are, they have completely different personalities and are absolutely feral, in my opinion. But, <laughs> um, you, I truly believe that we get the children we are supposed to have at the time we are supposed to have them. Um, I don't think that any of us is here at this time mm -hmm. by mistake. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, I don't, you know, I know you guys have been married for a couple of years. Don't know if how long you've been wanting this child or whatever. I know of two couples personally who waited upwards of 10 years and then finally got pregnant. Um, so I think it comes at his time, and if you have a child who has developmental issues or disabilities, you were meant to get that child. You, know, you were meant to be the mother and father to that child. You were built for it. You know, and along those same lines, there are now Scandinavian countries that say they have gotten rid of Down syndrome. Well, they didn't eliminate Down syndrome or cure it. They're just killing all of the children that would have it. And I mean, like, well, I could eliminate cancer. Just execute every cancer patient like that would get rid of cancer we got that for you Caleb exactly yeah. that's why I use that one <laughs> it's because I'm a cancer patient well, but apparently I'm like some groups for people with my heart problem and with mom and for moms with children with my heart problem which they're the annoying ones in the group. but anyway a lot of them talks about you know because now they're detecting technology of the low inside the womb uh, and which was not available in 1993 but they uh but yeah, so now they're, and doctors are recommending that you abort children with tetralogy below when detected in the womb. Mm -hmm. And that's something that they've been, I, I mean, I've seen several women say that. And I'm like, my gosh, I'm 28 years old with tetralogy below. They've not told me anything about having a shortened lifespan. I'm able to do what I want. Gosh, I'm carrying a child of my own right now. And, you know, I've got... I've got a law degree, I've got an LLM, I mean, I'm pretty capable of having a pretty good quality of life, married with a child and everything, and you would have aborted me? Like, it just doesn't make sense. Well, and, and that goes to exactly what you were saying, Hayden. Um, we've been talking about abortion primarily in legal terms and making logical science-based arguments and statistical arguments, but one thing does all go back to religion. Like. I, I would be anti-abortion if my religion was the only reason for that. 
it's not. And I would still be anti-abortion just because of, on a human rights standpoint, based on my political beliefs. But the point is, there is one thing that this all goes back to that does have to be based on religion. And that is the only reason that, that I would assert, even if I were not a religious person, that abortion would be wrong is because I would have to believe that human life is inherently valuable in some way. And you need some kind of basis for morality for that to happen, and that does take religion. Because there, there's not really a way to prove through secular rationality that one clump of cells is any more valuable than any other clump of cells. And so the fact that we're image bearers of God, and that, that, that being the origin of the reason that I see life is inherently valuable, that ultimately is where all of this comes from. Now, my stances on abortion you know, can come from scientific and statistical reasons for that as well. But at its core, that does have to be present to value human life as being inherently valuable because they are created in the image of God. And that's one thing that you can't get around, or at least not in my opinion. Well, and I think that also speaks to the point of oftentimes conservatives or Republicans, right-leaning people, however you want to phrase it. Right. Um, the, and you, you mentioned it. That oftentimes this idea is thrown out that, well, you only care about children that are in the And, you know, what Sam does and what I do with a lot of juvenile work, I think Laura, you do some juvenile work, you know, we see these children who are in horrible living conditions. And it's our job to do what's in the best interest of that child, mm -hmm. whether it is removing the child from the home and eventually terminating parental rights, getting the child put up for adoption or getting the child in relative care. And, you know, just recently um, here locally, there was this two month old child that was murdered by his father found mm -hmm. in the woods in a shallow grave. And those things absolutely tear at my heartstrings because I tell people all the time like there are options you can always place this child up for adoption you can always place this child there are so many fit willing able people who are begging for children mm -hmm. um you know whether it's just they feel that like that's their calling or they've been unable, unable to have children themselves and to say that we don't care about children outside of the womb is a complete falsehood and I said, just, you know, this, this two-month-old, just, you know, two weeks ago, this two-month-old, I can't imagine what, you know, what would cause someone to want to injure this two-month-old child. I think, thinking this is a 10-pound baby, what could he have possibly done? And, but then ultimately I know, once again, all of us are put here for a reason and all of, we all have an expiration date, even if that does on our heartstrings doesn't justify a murder, but I believe you're put here knowing uh, he knows when your expiration date is. And well, and, and that, you know, you've spoken to something that is so important because uh, it, it does take a level of faith that, you know, God does know what he's doing that would sort of lead us to believe that, you know, people are, are put here for a reason and that their timing, you know, God's timing is perfect and, and they're here for that purpose. But even if you don't, even if you're not a religious person, you can still get there from the standpoint of, if nothing else, human ignorance. Because usually in the face of human ignorance, the legal standard is we err on the side of liberty. Yeah. Like you don't arrest somebody because you think they might commit a crime at some point in the future. 
you have to judge based on what happens, not because if we start making assumptions, especially in the legal realm, based on what could happen, then you know we, we can basically make up laws and oppress people in any way that we want to. That can justify any legal action. Um, and so that's one thing that's important to understand here from the legal perspective as well, that when you're talking about doing things proactively to prevent something, there's a couple of reasons why that doesn't work. First of all, the example that I just gave where we just start, you know, in mass arresting people because we think they might commit crimes in the future. I mean, you, you don't take action based on what could happen. But I think the bigger point uh, and the one that, that makes more sense, it, it's derived down to um, you always just assume that I don't even know the best way to phrase this, but. You, you always try to work from the perspective of doing the most good mm -hmm. and not just your interpretation of the most good. Because when you're talking about the, the dichotomy, I, I heard someone actually recently make the argument that, well, there was uh, this kid that was born to a crack baby and his mother slit his throat when he was a baby. Now, that's a horrible scenario. But they're saying, I, I would have just rather them got, gone ahead and been able to get the abortion. And I'm like, First of all, you didn't know for a fact that that was going to happen. But second of all, why is it better and why do you get to make the decision that it's better for that baby to not have lived that 10 months? I mean, obviously, that's that's a horrible scenario that none of us would ever want to happen. But why is it killing the baby now as opposed to then is somehow better? Like, I, I don't understand that rationale. Yeah, you, you nailed it, Caleb. I, I agree with you. You know, back before I moved to Alabama, right before I moved here, I was working for the Leadership Institute. It's a conservative group out of D.C. But my, my job is to set up conservative student groups on college campuses. And, and sometimes I got to, you know, pose, pose as a student and try to catch, you know, liberals on video and try to expose some of the things that they did. So one time I posed as a student and I infiltrated a Planned Parenthood group on a campus that, you know, I was, I was visiting. And I got talking to, to, you know, one of its people about why they did what they did. And I was trying to pretend that I was somebody that didn't know very much about abortion. It was just asking very obvious questions. Uh -huh. Was I'm just like, okay, so my understanding of your argument is you're not sure whether the unborn child is a person or not. You're not sure whether it's alive or not. So because you don't know, you want to defer to the mother's judgment, right? Or you think that the woman will be able to decide, like, yeah, that's okay. I'm like, all right, now let me ask you something. Let's say I was working for a construction company, right? And we were set to, to, to demolish a building. You know, we had the explosive set. And right as the guys get ready to push uh, the button to, you know, to set off the explosives, people start talking and say, hey, we still got a person in there. Now, you don't know for a fact whether there's a person in there or not, all right? But isn't the wise thing to do to hold off on blowing up the building until you're sure? Like, yeah. Like, all right, so right, erring on the side of, yeah. Yeah, so they conceded that. So I'm like, all right, well, that, by that same logic, if you're not sure whether it's a child or not, shouldn't you err on the side of caution? And Because if you're wrong, you're killing a human being. They said, you know, that's a really good question, and um, I don't have the answer to that. Well, he said we're honest about it. Um, but, 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 you know, it, yeah, it goes to show, you know, most decent human beings or even folks that, you know, don't necessarily share a religion or a worldview, like 99% of people, if they were put in that scenario, they'd be like, yeah, hold off, don't blow it up because you could be killing a person. Okay, so why would you not apply that same logic to a child in the womb, you know? Even if you're not sure, ignorance should actually err on the side of caution, not, uh, not recklessness. Right, I mean, it'd be like, since we just went the, through the coronavirus, that offers a really good analogy here. 
like let's say that we look at somebody with uh, that's diabetic and over a certain age. So that person would be extremely high risk from dying from the coronavirus. Should we just have looked at every person over the age of 60 that has diabetes and just killed them all? Because it'd be really bad for them to have to suffer with the coronavirus. Like that doesn't make any sense. And but when you put it in those terms, people understand it. Why? Because they understand that person is a person. And that's the that's always been the dividing line here that we're trying to cross is that they when they understand that it's a person, when it's something that they obviously consider a human being, they're perfectly fine with saying, no, no, you shouldn't you shouldn't kill that person. But for whatever reason, they believe that in the womb that that becomes a question mark for some reason. And I, I don't really understand why there's no scientific, philosophical or religious basis for that whatsoever, that that is not a person. But that, that tends to be how they, they understand it. And one thing that, that I'd like to go, up, uh, go back to that you brought up, Hayden, where uh, I've debunked this so many times on my show, where they say that Christians only care about kids that are inside the womb. Um, but the truth is, that's simply not the case. And the reason that I say that is because you look at the vast majority of charity hospitals, run by Christians. You look at the vast majority of adoption agencies run by Christians, most of it by charitable donations. Uh, you know, we could go through a long list, orphanages, everything else. There really is no group of people that cares about kids more than Christians. But even if that were the case, Hayden, let's say that they absolutely made that case and they were correct. That would not be an argument to be in favor of abortion. It would be an argument to be better about taking care of kids. And, and so even if their argument worked, it still wouldn't make sense for me to support their position if their argument were in fact true. And so it's always been kind of a silly argument when people try to make that case. Well, I, I agree with that. And I wish that there was some way to predict, you know, when a child is brought home from the hospital that that child would be mistreated or murdered or abused or, you know, otherwise maltreated, malnourished, whatever. Um, I wish there was a way we could predict that, but I mean, psychology has already shown that through all the research into criminal offenders that there's absolutely no way to predict criminality. No way then there's, there's no way to predict who's going to be a good mother or a bad mother or a good father or a bad father. Um, there's absolutely no way to predict that. I wish that there was so that we would know from the time the child came out of the womb that we could protect that child so that we didn't have eight-week-old babies being found in the woods. And yeah. I, I wish that there was some way that we could do that. Um, but like you said, it takes an extreme amount of faith to say, okay, I don't understand why this happened to this you know, six- or eight-week-old baby. I don't understand why this happened. It, pull, it tugs at my heartstrings to even know what this child went through in his last breaths. Mm -hmm. I don't know why that happened. I, I, you know, I can't justify it. But it does take an extreme amount of faith to say, you know what? The Lord knew when he put him here that his time would be short. And that sounds insensitive. It sounds, well, awful. But... At the same time, it does take an extreme amount of faith to say, okay, well, he's in control, even though we, in our human capacity, have to say, okay, we know that there is a reason. No different than, I mean, we're looking at 700,000 children 
aborted each year and there was a meme I saw on social media not too long ago that said, you know, we were constantly asking for a cure for cancer or a mm. cure for all these different diseases or so forth. Well, you may have aborted the one that he sent to bring about that cure, you know. So there's so many right. people that we don't know what their impact would have been um, because they didn't get to realize that no different than the children that we could not protect that we lose to, you know, whether it's child abuse, murders or, you know, whatever else. Well, and, and if we were to look at, for example, the possibility uh, just to speak to the point that you just made, uh, if we were to look at like the perfect candidate for an abortion, as far as that would go, um, you would have to say it would be somebody that was like born to a single mom in a really bad neighborhood with very few means to take care of it. And, and that baby, you know, like John Rogers, unfortunately, the insane person that sits on Alabama's House of Representatives, uh, said, well, we're either going to have to kill them in the womb or kill them later when they get incarcerated. Well, first of all, Alabama does, unfortunately, several thousand abortions a year, and we had two executions last year. So yep. the math just doesn't work out on that one. I know John Rogers isn't good at math, but it's, it's not the same. But second of all, even if that were the case, even if that were 100% true and, you know, you have to account for the fact that you have people like Ben Carson who had exactly that scenario uh -huh. and became a respected and celebrated surgeon that has done things with brain surgery that no one else before him has been able to do. And so you, you can't, you, it, it amazes me that the very same people on the left that say it's incorrect to judge somebody based on their circumstances say that it's absolutely okay and, and actually prudent to judge somebody based on their circumstances and the projections of what their life will probably look like when it comes to abortion. I agree with that. I mean, it's like, you know, I don't know if I, I don't know what James is going to do. I really don't. I don't know what kind of person is going to be. I think that's like a subject of maybe 80% of my conversations with Matt. Like, <laughs> what is this child going to do? And heaven forbid he decides to play electric guitar and never learn how to read music, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> You know, but that's no reason for me to end him because I think he might decide he hates the idea of reading music. Yeah, or worse, becomes an Alabama fan. That can. Oh. <laughs> I, that's, that's been a serious conversation. Kidding, kidding. No, I'm just. <laughs> also, side note of humans, just you know, talking about abortion and stuff, and he's moving around like crazy. Like he's picking up. He's trying to find more room in my uterus right now. I think he hears. He's like. You know, Mom, I'd like to say something about this. <laughs> I, I genuinely wish he could. Um, <laughs> I want to live. Please don't kill me. Yeah. It, but I, I will say that's a lovely clump of cells you're growing there, Laura. Well done. Thanks. I think he's really pretty. Yeah. Well, I think that we've, you know, had a, a lot of really good points made and a lot of great conversation. I'd like to go ahead and just kind of go around the room and get some closing thoughts before we close out. And, and Laura, since you're the one that is... Uh, great with child right now i'd actually like to start with you uh, I, i'm hopeful that the supreme court will overturn roe v wade i don't think that's exactly what's going to happen but i'm hopeful that that's whatever they do will at least give more children the ability to live absolutely matt yeah please pray for the supreme court with this case um i worry a little bit because I'm afraid that Mississippi and the Supreme Court are going to be in a scare, staring contest to see who blinks first in asking the court to roll back its abortion decisions. Um, 
I think right now we have six justices on the Supreme Court who agree, number one, that Roe was wrongly decided, mm -hmm. and number two, that it was a blatant act of judicial legislation rather than properly interpreting the Constitution, and three, that these six justices think it is absolutely improper for the judiciary to legislate from the bench. So they have all that going for them, and those are very good things. The problem is they are also reluctant to overrule precedents unless they're explicitly asked. So if Mississippi asks them to overrule the part where you have to draw the line of viability, but they don't ask them to go all the way and throwing the right to abortion out altogether, mm -hmm. then these guys are going to be left thinking, well, gosh, I either have to draw a new line, which I hate because abortion is illegitimate, it's not the judiciary's role to do that. So I have to create a new rule saying it's okay to kill a baby under these circumstances. And they're not going to want to do that. Um, they're also not going to want to throw Roe completely out unless they ask them. So I, I really, I'm thinking the justices are going to be sympathetic, but they're really going to be less scratching their head on what to do here. I think Thomas is the only reliable one that's going to go all the way and say, if we throw viability out, we got to look to the Constitution to see what the line is. And when we look to the Constitution, we see that there's no right to abortion. So there's my answer. Um, so I would say be praying for the justices that you know, if God is willing that he would just incline their hearts to go all in like that, that's what we're going to try to push them to do. But at the very least, that if they're not willing to go all the way, that they at least go some of the way, and they leave the door wide open for a full-out attack on Roe and Casey in the future. Yeah. Hayden? Well, I mean, I agree with the point that um, both Matt and Maura have made. Um, and, I mean, I think... Unfortunately, I think we'll end up with maybe a little twist on Roe and Casey. I don't think that it's going to be an outright um, ban, or I don't think that there's going to be an outright state sovereignty, do what you want. Um, I think they may roll it back some and give the states more leeway as to what the states can regulate and what laws they can implement and so forth. Um, I don't know that we'll get much in the way of Casey with what's an undue burden and what's not and so forth. Because right now, I think we have so many slippery slopes, whether, you know, what's viability, what's an undue burden, you know, what, you know, but then at the same time, when it comes to certain areas of law, we don't particularly care for bright line rules. Sometimes we love a bright line rule that says yes or no, mm -hmm. but then sometimes when things like this, you're like, okay, you have so many moving parts where if you are talking about that 2% where this could be a grave risk to the mother or this child will likely not be a full-term birth, um, you know, those are considerations that I think the court understands we can't make a hard and fast rule. Sure, we could default to the states and allow the constituents of those states to decide what they want to be the law in that state. Um, I think that would be ideal, but I think we might see just a slight tweaking and maybe some more leverage for the states as a whole, um, or rather individually the states to be able to decide what their own laws are. But I definitely think Matt's on point of the fact that as, especially with a conservative Christian mindset, I think that we just have to pray for the right outcome and hope that, you know, the court is guided by that and that they come up with something that um, we can all live with, all of us, <laughs> we can all live with. Well, 
I, I agree. Um, but I take the, um, I mean, I, I thought all of that was good, but I, I do kind of have to call into question, and, and this is just, I guess, my mindset or the, the way that I think about it. Um, my biggest issue is you need to always remember that no law exists unless someone is there to enforce it. Uh, ultimately, that is what law is, because you can write all the laws you want. If there's not somebody there to make sure the law is followed, then it doesn't matter. And unfortunately, I hate to say this because I don't, I don't like the place that this could go because it could go wrong very quickly. I have always asserted, especially since now it is the official law of the state of Alabama that all abortions are banned, that a governor and a law enforcement agency in Alabama that is worth their salt would actually enforce that and dare the federal government to come down and try to stop them. And if they did, then they take it to the Supreme Court. Because if that happens, then the Supreme Court would be forced to answer that question. We wouldn't be piddling around the edges. We wouldn't be playing these games where we're having to wonder, okay, you know, what did Justice Roberts have for breakfast this morning? And let's see if that affects the ultimate. Because then we wouldn't have to worry about that because then the, the court would be faced with the question of can the states decide for themselves what abortion is going to be or can they not? And they'd have to answer that question one way or the other. I applaud Mississippi for doing this. I hope that it yields good results. But if we wanted to actually get rid of the worst thing that has happened in American history, and yes, I'm including slavery, it goes abortion, then slavery, and then probably something else. Um, but, I mean, that's how I would rank it. If we want to end the, the worst blight on the American soul in our history, it's going to take somebody that is willing to say to the federal government, no, we value human life, we are ending this, and we dare you to come and try to stop us, but you're going to have to stop us from keeping, uh, from allowing abortion in our state. That, that's, that's what you're going to have to do. I don't like taking that option, but you know, we're here 50 years later and nothing's changed. And so I, I do think that it's time for the people of Alabama to show some courage and actually dare the federal government to do that. And if they did, and then the Supreme Court would have to get involved, then we would actually have an answer to that question that would be definitive and, and you know, ultimately what I would want to happen, obviously, is that to be the vehicle to say, no, human life is valuable from conception to grave, and we're not going to allow people to end the life of another person without their consent in this country. But I appreciate so much everybody being here and, and listening to us all the way through this conversation. It was uh, a lengthy one, but I think a very valuable one. Thank you so much for all your contributions. Matt, Laura, it's always a pleasure to have you and James, who makes a special guest appearance, and uh, he'll be. Yeah, we'll uh, <laughs> we'll be able to see him soon enough. Hayden, thank you so much, and also Sam McClure, who was nice enough to to be generous with his time and join us, even though he had to duck out a little early. Um, thank you so much for listening to this, guys. What we're going to do is we're going to go ahead and uh, call it for the evening, and uh, we'll be back in just a moment on tactics. Speech isn't violence. Tolerance isn't love. Disagreement isn't hate. You're listening to Tactics with Caleb Cockwit. If you want to hear more, subscribe to him on YouTube, like him on Facebook, or follow him on Twitter at Tactics Radio. That was stupid. I know it was stupid. Really stupid. Hey, I just said it was stupid.
Welcome back, everybody, and thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics. We do have two daily doses of stupid for you, so a double dose of the daily dose of stupid, as we've been doing for the past couple months since we moved to the one show a week format. The first one is really quite entertaining because she's always entertaining. That's right. It is the return to the Daily Dose of Stupid for our favorite congressperson, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And so she is going to be the feature of this one. Now, a lot of you know that AOC not exactly an expert in a lot of different fields of study, right? Which is interesting because she actually does have two undergraduate degrees. He ha she has a degree in foreign relations and a degree in economics, which is fascinating because she doesn't seem to know anything about either of those two things. So yeah, an, an expert in economics, not really an expert in foreign re relations. No, can't even name foreign cities, which I can't either, but I also don't have a degree in it and don't claim to know about that stuff. Uh, not really an expert on things like political science, not too good at history, not so great at basic math or, you know, rudimentary elementary level logic. But there is one thing that no matter how you feel about AOC, whether you like her, whether you don't like her, whether you are a member of the fan club or not, there is one thing that I don't think anybody, liberal or conservative, would contest. And that is AOC is an expert in this one particular area of life. She is one of the best, might be the world's leading authority on playing the victim. She is absolutely excellent at it. And I think a lot of it, I mean, whenever you ask the best coaches, the best uh, debate team coaches like my dad did, he always gave this answer. Or whether you're asking like the, the best football coach, the, the best basketball coach, whatever it is. I mean, Nick Saban actually talks about this as well. You want to know how they have success, how they become experts in that? Practice, 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 practice. And that's exactly what AOC does is she constantly practices being the victim. And because of that, she is the world's leading authority on how to play the victim. And this week is going to be no different on that. So the thing that she's talking about is playing the victim when it came to the uh, January 6th Capitol riots. Now, here's the thing. I understand that it is a scary thing. If you were a member of Congress, you re Republican, Democrat, whatever, you had a right to be scared when that was going on. So I'm not trying to mitigate this. But what I am pointing out is that the way that she talks about it and the way that the left in general talks about it so ridiculously overblows the thing that it's not even funny. I mean, we've got right now several hundred people that have been arrested and, and seemingly based on some news reports in, in really terrible conditions with uh, without some of their basic rights as prisoners, including uh, attorney-client privilege, things like that. And so I don't really want to get into that. That's beyond the scope of what we're going to, to look at tonight. But the left has so overblown this thing, talking about it being a sedition and an uprising and an armed resistance, even though in testimony on the hill the other day they actually asked one of the people that was working with the capitol police during that time how many firearms did you confiscate during this and she said zero how many shooting incidents did you have well we had one shooting incident and it was the officer who shot a protester and so they're acting like this was some kind of they they stormed the bastilla 
and showed up with a bunch of guns and, and set up like a autonomous zone inside the Capitol. Didn't happen at all. Happened in Seattle, but it didn't happen. It did not happen in the Capitol. And, and that doesn't mean that it was not incredibly stupid, that it was illegal, that I'm fine with them you know, within their rights as American citizens, because we still have that even for prisoners, that they should be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. Totally okay with that. But the left is so overblown, this thing, and AOC is no exception to that. <clears throat> so I say all that to say, I understand why AOC or any member of Congress would be legitimately frightened about this. If you were at your place of work, regardless of what you do for a living, and you saw a bunch of very angry people storming into your workplace, regardless of the context, that would be a reason to be worried. And you should be worried. That, that would be a reasonable human response to that. But AOC has blown it so far out of proportion. She's talked about how she's going to therapy and, and treating it like she has PTSD and everything. And really, I think that that was sort of solidified and, and we can take a look at the story that she did. And, and this is a, not the story we're looking at today, the story from a couple months ago, where she was talking about there were people yelling at her inside her office. Well, it turns out the person that was yelling at her was a police officer and the police officer was asking if she was okay. Now, once somebody actually pointed out to her that the only person that she did interact with during that time was a police officer she said, yeah, but I didn't know if he was there to kill me or not, which again shows exactly what we're talking about with AOC. She is so bought into this insane leftist narrative that she genuinely believes that if a police officer shows up, there's like a 50-50 shot that he's going to shoot her just because she's not white. I, they've so bought into their own narrative, they believe their own lies. And so AOC was like, well, yeah, I, okay, it was a police officer. She kind of got caught with her hand in the cookie jar lying about it. She's like, okay, it was a police officer that talked to me about that. But the thing is, I didn't know if the police officer was then going to shoot me. Oh, okay, now you're being ridiculous. Being scared? Sure. Being anxious? Sure. Barricading yourself in your office? Reasonable thing to do considering the circumstances. But being scared that a police officer is going to shoot you just because you happen to not be white or a member of Congress? No, that's crazy town. And there was no reason to be afraid of that. And so this is the latest iteration of that insanity that she has put forth. Let's go ahead and look at this graphic from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. This is from Yahoo News. I thought I was, sorry, I almost forgot AOC voice. I like thought I was going to die. She recalled in an emotional Instagram live in February. I like have never been quieter in my entire life. Okay. I totally believe that. I know that she's blowing this out of proportion, but that part of the quote, 100% legitimate. I was not even there, and I will vouch for that. I am certain that she has never been quieter in her life because she cannot shut up for more than five seconds. And I say this is somebody who, you know, talks for a living. And then it continues on. In her interview with Latino USA, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said that the insurrection was deeply traumatizing for the members of Congress who effectively served in war. She said the event also, like, implicated the actual legislative process, sorry, impacted, in Congress, according to NBC News. Okay, it did impact the legislative process in Congress, that is true. It was such a terrible, bad insurrection. 
I mean, it was it was so horrible and and so frightful and and came so like within an eyelash of just completely taking over the country and and we were going to be run by the MAGA crowd. That about six hours after it happened, Congress was right back in the exact same place and went ahead and certified the election. That's how terrible it was. It it derailed Congress for almost six hours. Really, that that's your best play. This is the thing that could have ended the country as we know it. And six hours later, you're in the same building doing exactly what you were doing six hours earlier. I mean, don't get me wrong, still bad. But we act as though this thing had a legitimate shot at ending the country, and it just didn't. It never even came close to that. The people that were arrested weren't even armed. If this was a coup d'etat, it was by far the worst coup d'etat of all time. This is like the America's Funniest Home Videos version of a coup d'etat. <laughs> but this is the way that they're trying to depict it. And I've always said this about AOC. I think this is the best way to understand Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She's like if a Disney Channel character, like, like let's say Disney Channel did a... A, a series, a kid series, and the premise of the sitcom was somehow a 13-year-old girl gets elected to the House of Representatives. That's AOC. <laughs> That's, it's like we're watching Disney Channel making one of their shows real life when watching her because everything is the biggest problem that has ever happened. She's like a 13-year-old girl. Uh, every little thing that happens to her is the, the biggest problem that has ever been in the history of mankind. She's terrified of garbage disposals and doesn't understand what they are. Um, she, you know, she can't contemplate or, or think with a, a logical thought for more than 10 seconds and everything that happens to her, she's always the victim. She's the most victimized person in human history. Um, but you know, that's, that's where we stand with AOC. And I, the, the most telling thing of that whole thing, because she has such a lack of perspective on things like history or, or like other people's experiences she genuinely believes that this event that she went through, which again, I could see as being scary. I, I could see somebody being rattled afterward, but she's going to therapy like she's, you know, been through a hostage situation. And afterward talking about how effectively that's the same thing as serving in war. No, granted, never served in war myself. So I'm not going to pretend that I do know what that's like because I don't. But I have family members that did. I know a lot of people that did. Montgomery is a military town. There's a lot of vets here. I have a lot of friends that served. Several of them have been on my show multiple times. Our own, uh, uh, back when I was at 1440, Kevin Elkins, a paratrooper. I mean, there's vets all over the place. This, this city has vets everywhere. You, you see people walking down in fatigues on a regular basis in the city of Montgomery. And I can tell you, my grandfather served in Germany. He fought in the Battle of the Bulge. He won a Bronze Star. And I've heard his war stories since I was old enough to talk. And yes, what AOC went through, she shouldn't have had to go through. But to pretend that that is like service in the that's comparable to soldiers storming the beaches of Normandy or doing what my grandfather did, driving a tank into Berlin, <laughs> that that's somehow the same thing. I mean, if, if AOC stubbed her toe, did she want a purple heart for that? I mean, it's just stupid. This chick has no perspective whatsoever. It's like, 
I, I mean, she literally thinks that the world is going to end in 12 years. We've played that clip on the show before. And every little thing is just the world's biggest problem that has ever happened. She said, this is our World War II about climate change. She literally thinks that people um, throwing their plastics in a regular trash can as opposed to a recycling bin is equivalent to killing 6 million Jews. She, she doesn't see that there's a distinction between those two things. This is how she thinks because she can't, um, she cannot differentiate in a measure of degrees for, for anything. Every little problem is the world's biggest problem and, and the world will never face a problem bigger than the one that she's facing right now. That's just the way that she thinks. Um, but what's crazy about this is, because obviously thinking about like World War II, Korea, Vietnam, the Civil War, all of those things that people actually in Congress did serve in those wars, not all of them, but several of them did. That obviously is not a fair comparison. And no, no rational, sane thinking person, uh, none of those things AOC actually is, would ever make that comparison. However, there is actually a pretty good comparison that we have recently. Steve Scalise was nearly killed and two other Republican congressmen were shot when a Bernie Sanders supporter, somebody who actually worked for his campaign, not Bernie's fault, not AOC's fault, but this is the person that AOC recently endorsed for president. Don't blame them for them having a crazy person that worked for their campaign. But a person from that campaign opened up fire and tried to kill about 30% of Congress. I mean, we, they would have killed, um, I, I think it depends on how you were counting it, but it was, it was anywhere between 10 to 30% of Congress because of all the people that were there at that baseball field that day. <clears throat> and I remember because I covered it that morning. I actually had then-Senator Luther Strange on the program with me from Washington to discuss what had been going on that day. So I, I remember that very well. Our own Congressman Mo Brooks, who's running for the Senate right now, was actually there and, and may have saved Steve Scalise's life because he took off his belt to use as a tourniquet to stop the bleeding, and, and Steve Scalise barely made it. And if Steve Scalise had said, even though he almost died and was shot, that, oh, yeah, that, that, that's basically the same as serving in war. No, it's not. I'm not trying to measure and say one's better, one's worse. There's a lot of people that served in war that never got shot like Steve Scalise did, and, and that was a terrible experience. And I'm sure that they're very, you know, the Scalise family was probably pretty darn rattled after that. Understandably so. But she's now saying that having to wait in her office and be quiet and have a police officer come by and check if she's okay, that is exactly the same thing as serving in war. But even though we have something that actually was kind of similar to serving in a war, in Steve Scalise getting almost mortally wounded and finally coming out of that alive, even if he had said that was the same as serving in war, I'd say that was dumb. Because as horrible as it was, it was an event in time. It was one thing that happened. My grandfather went to Germany for two years and he said, I only got scared once. I was scared when I got on the boat to head over there and I stayed scared till I got back on American soil. And that's how they felt. They were terrified for two years straight, walking around Europe, freezing their rear ends off, 
uh, you know, dr- trying to find food, worrying if they're going to come up against the enemy. I-, I mean, it's like two years of constant terror and having to engage the enemy, fight them, fight back. You never know if the guys that you're standing next to are going to make it back alive. You don't know if you're going to make it back alive. That's something that they went through for just about two solid years. But yeah, sure, AOC, one afternoon where you have to hide behind your desk with the lights off and and hide behind the safety of a police officer guarding you, that's exactly the same thing. Don't give me a break. This is a blatant insult to every single person that has ever fought for the Stars and Stripes, and I'm not among them. I'm not pretending like I am. AOC apparently thinks it's okay for her to do this. But the idea that that is an equivalency, and not just people that have served, because that would be a big enough slap in the face to them, but specifically the people that served and served in wartime, which is significantly more difficult to do, and even the ones that didn't serve in wartime would tell you that. She's saying that that's basically exactly the same thing. We, we've effectively served in war. No. AOC is not a serious person, and anybody that takes them seriously is not intelligent. I'm sorry. There's just no nicer way to put it. If you think that she is a serious person, when she constantly makes stupid comparisons and analogies like this, I honestly can't take you seriously because I question your own mental competency if you take her as a serious person. But the sad thing in all of this is, she probably actually does believe her own story. And the reason that I say that is, it seems sincere. And it's the same thing that I see when we talk about Greta Thunberg. You see, Greta, the reason that she's effective to so many people, the people on the right don't get it, but the people on the left, the reason they see her as being so effective is because she is sincere. And that's because she legitimately believes the world is going to end in 12 years. This is something she actually believes, and she's terrified. And if you really believe the world was going to end in 12 years, you would be terrified too. The lie is so absurd and so obviously incorrect, but they believe it. And she believes, AOC does, that what she went through, I I don't think she's lying. I think that she may be utilizing it for political purposes to try to gain sympathy. But at the end of the day, I think she actually does believe the lie. I think she actually buys into that's exactly what war is like, and that's how horrible the thing that they went through actually is. She really believes that in, in her own, you know, very tiny brain. And so she really has, do, she's, she dove into this lie so hard that she actually hit her head, and that's why she believes that this is the case. But ultimately, the left needed the Capitol riots. They had to have them. And this is evidenced by the fact that what they're using it to justify now, keeping a a permanent, I don't even know what you would call it, but because battalion's not exactly right because it's more than that, but they're keeping a, a number of National Guardsmen in the Capitol seemingly in perpetuity forever. They supposedly went home, I believe, this Sunday, but actually they still kept about 20 to 40,000 of them around. Um, they have the the terror threat bulletin that was supposed to end in April, but they've extended now all the way to August, saying that right-wing extremism is the biggest terror threat in the country, even though this is like the one event that they can point to. No mention of BLM, no mention of Antifa, when there were literally cities, and including Washington, D.C., burning, and the 
idiots that stormed the Capitol on the 6th. Yes, it's dumb. Yes, I don't condone it. But they went in and they broke stuff. That's bad. But it's not anywhere near to the level of the other things on the left that they just brush aside and say are mostly peaceful. But the left needed that one thing that they can point to, and, and frankly, this is the best that they've got. It's pathetic, it's sad, but it's the only thing that they can point to to justify saying that conservatives are somehow dangerous, and so they have to hold on to that narrative of conservatives being dangerous and wanting to take over the country by force. Because when you constantly try to paint your opponents as fascists, and they don't do anything fascist, it's kind of hard to keep that narrative going, even for your own people. And so because of that, this was like the thing that they could point to and say, see, they're fascists, they tried to take over by force. Now, that's ridiculous. I think that they were dumb, but I don't think that they were tr taking over by force. I don't think that that was ever the plan in any of the people that stormed the Capitol's mindset. And if so, they're the most incompetent group of morons I've ever seen. They may wind up being the most incompetent group of morons I've ever seen, even if that wasn't their intention. But the point is, uh, they, they had no, there was no serious effort to actually stop the government from functioning and take over it. And anybody that says that, that they should be immediately disregarded if that is what they're saying. Now, for the second Daily Dose of Stupid, we're going to be focusing on, for this Daily Dose of Stupid, David Ch Chipman, who is the Biden nominee for the director of the Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms Administration. So the organization within the government that is supposed to take care of regulating alcohol, alcohol tobacco, and firearms doesn't seem to know an awful lot about guns, which, considering the last part of that firearms, would be one of the things he's regulating you would think would kind of be something that would be a priority, but apparently not. Let's listen to him trying to define what an assault weapon is, for example. Do you believe in banning assault weapons? I do, sir. Okay. Define assault weapons. Um, assault weapons would be something that um, members of Congress would define. Well, how do you define it? You're going to be running the agency. Um, I, Senator, I think this is a good question. If I am um, confirmed as ATF director... Um, I got 35 seconds left. Define it for me, would you please, sir? Um, What's an assault there, weapon? Yeah, Senator, uh, um, the bill uh, to ban assault what, weapons is what is your dozens of pages. Of There's no way I could define an assault weapon. You don't have any. You're going to run an this agency, and you don't have a definition of assault weapon. But I would be enforcing the definition that members yeah, of Congress be have. Hmm. You want to ban it, you just can't define it. That seems to be the standard that we're running with here. So you really think that we should be banning assault weapons, but you can't actually tell me what an assault weapon is. Yeah. Unfortunately, this is a common position amongst the left because they want to ban assault weapons, but then when you ask them what a assault weapons actually are, they have no idea. This is actually pretty common with bump stocks. This is pretty common with ghost guns. Uh, you know, all of these catchy buzzwords that liberals talk about things they'd like to ban. When you ask them what the thing is, they can't actually tell you. They just know that they're supposed to ban it. And it sounds scary, so we should get rid of it. 
but they can't actually tell you what it is or why they want to ban it. And what's funny about this is if the situation were reversed, they would never let people on the right get away with something like this. For example, when I would say, I think we should ban gay marriage. Can you define gay marriage? Uh, I don't know, but like it has the word gay in it. And I think gay is supposed to be bad. So I'm going to go with no, I, I don't. I think we should just ban gay marriage. Well, why are you against it if you can't define it? Like, don't you have to know what something is before you know what your position is on it? Now, this is the way that Americans used to think. Now we've kind of devolved into, well, I know that my team is against it. Therefore, I'm going to be against it because that's what my team is against. It's kind of like how Auburn fans like myself just know instinctively that we're supposed to hate Alabama. Like, it's, that's kind of what it is. It, it really is. Um, well, I know I'm supposed to be against Alabama and I know I'm supposed to be against Georgia. Um, but unfortunately that's about the level of seriousness that has come into this country that a lot of people don't even know their own policy positions. The same thing would be true with like partial birth abortion. If I said, I just want to ban partial birth abortion. Well, can you tell me what partial birth abortion is? Well, it should be banned. I know that. Here's what's actually going on here though. The truth is. I think you can actually define assault weapon. And here's what I mean by that. There's not really a good definition no matter who's giving it. And I say that of people on the right and the left. I, I don't know a ton about guns, but I know enough to know what generally people consider assault weapons. But the thing is, that's an incredibly vague moving target because some people will define this as assault weapon, but to the next person, that's not an assault weapon at all. It is a term that they manufactured. It says nothing to the functionality of the gun. It is a, uh, every time it's been defined in a law, almost always the features that define it are largely cosmetic. Things like barrel shrouds or powder suppressors or sound suppressors, uh, things like that. So it, it's almost always centered around stuff like that. Things that have a, a, a telescopic um, butt or a, a scope. So if you have any of that, apparently that constitutes being an assault weapon, even though it doesn't actually change how the gun fires or how easy it is to fire or any of those things. It doesn't change how big a hole the bullet makes, none of those things. They just know that it's an assault weapon, therefore it must be bad because it sounds like a super, super scary gun. But I don't think that that's actually what's going on here. This is a guy that did serve in the ATF. He does know a little bit about guns, unlike most of the people that are against assault weapons and want them banned, like Joe Biden, who demonstrates over and over and over again, he has no idea what he's talking about when it comes to guns. Um, he, he tells people to just fire shotguns through a, a closed door up in the air, both of which are illegal, by the way, um, and talks about how it's incredibly hard to aim and hard to shoot an AR-15, but it's a lot easier to shoot and aim a shotgun, which is completely untrue. I've shot both on many occasions. So he's not like the, the ones that usually just don't know what they're talking about about guns. It's not that he can't define it. And this is why I'm cheating a little bit by putting this in the Daily Dose of Stupid. I mean, yes, the concept we're talking about is stupid. But I don't think he's actually dumb and I don't think he's actually ignorant. I think what's actually going on here is he could define it if he wanted to. He's choosing not to because he knows it will look bad and it will hurt his confirmation vote. 
And the reason that I say that is he has a tell in this segment, and we're actually going to look at another one here in a second that kind of illustrates this. He doesn't want to define it because he keeps deferring to Congress and saying that they're the ones that are actually going to define it. And he basically just sort of re-illustrates this and, and drives this point home when he's being questioned by Senator Cotton here. You have called for an assault weapons ban. I have a simple question for you. What is an assault weapon? Senator, um, an assault weapon would be, in, in the context of the question you asked, what Congress uh, defines it as. So you're asking us to ban assault weapons. We have to write legislation. Can you tell me what is an assault weapon? How would you define it if you were the, chair, the head of the ATF? How have you defined it over the last several years uh, as your role as a gun control advocate? Um, Senator, um, if I'm confirmed as ATF director, um, you know, my recollection is the only um, um, process but by which ATF is weighed in is that I know there's a demand letter three program, which requires multiple reports, uh, multiple sale reports on the southwestern border. And ATF in that program has defined an assault rifle as any semi-automatic rifle capable of accepting a detachable magazine um, above the caliber of 22, which would include a 223, which is, you know, largely the so, AR-15 round. All right. So you see there that he actually does give a definition, but, and I didn't play it because it's long and boring. After that, he does try to clarify and sort of hedge himself. He's like, well, that's not really my personal definition. That's the definition. That's the only definition that I could think of where the ATF has designated something to be an assault rifle. And so he's very careful here in trying to say, this isn't my definition, it's a definition that I can give you that, that might be kind of similar to something that I would think of. And, and we'll parse through the fine details of that in a second. But what's important to understand here is, this is how the game is played. This is how they get gun control through. See, what he's saying there is, well, I'm just the ATF director if I get confirmed. And so all I'm going to do is enforce the laws that Congress passes. But what happens when Congress actually passes that law? There's a good chance that it wouldn't define assault weapon at all. Or it would leave certain levels of vagueness in the law to allow the ATF director to define it for them. This is something that Congress has been doing for decades now. They don't actually pass a law. They'll pass something like the Clean Air and Water Act, where they say uh, the EPA has to make air clean and water clean go. And they don't actually offer directions of what the EPA is supposed to do about that or how they're supposed to achieve that goal. They just say in the law, that's going to be left up to the discretion of the bureaucrats in that administration, in that particular branch of the federal government. And this is no different. A lot of times when they try to pass gun control or anything related to guns, they'll pass something that's super vague and not real specific, something like the word assault weapon, and then say, well, that will be left up to the discretion of the person running the ATF. And see, this is how both sides avoid accountability. Because while he's not a bureaucrat right now, that's what he's trying out to be. And so he's just sitting there going like, well, I don't really have a personal definition of assault weapons. This is a definition that 
you know, the ATF used at one point and, and it might be kind of similar to something that I would do, but I, I don't really have a definite because I would just go with whatever Congress says. And then Congress actually passes the law and the law says, well, we'll just go with whatever the ATF says. And so that means he gets confirmed without having to give the definition and take all of the crap about having to explain what he would define a assault weapon as. So he gets to go through the confirmation process without having to do that and saying, well, that's up to Congress. And then when Congress passes the law and then people get mad at the congressman for the way that the ATF is enforcing that law, they say, oh, we, well, we didn't do that. That's up to the ATF. You see how they avoid accountability that way? They can just give you the government runaround forever. And see, once it's, oh, well, sorry, that's not us. That's the ATF that made that call. Okay, how do you get the ATF out of office? You can't. You can't recall the ATF. You can't impeach a sitting ATF director. Well, actually, you could uh, because it is an appointed one. But my point is that's not something that you could do as a voter, as a regular citizen. And so this is how the bureaucracy and Congress kind of protect each other while not having to take accountability for any of it. That's how the game is played. This is how this runs in Washington and how the politicians can say, well, we didn't do that. And then the ATF can say, yeah, well, we were just doing what Congress told us to do. And so you see how it just kind of creates that vicious feedback loop. But it's important to note that in that definition where he says it would be any rifle that is able to accept a detachable magazine of a caliber higher than 22, that would be the AR-15 and pretty much every other modern sporting rifle, just about all of them. There would be a handful of exceptions because you could have one that's not a uh, automatic or sorry, a semi-automatic. You could have a lever action, you could have a bolt action, something like that, something that requires two actions to be able to fire a single round. Or you could use one that doesn't have a detachable magazine, but the way that it works now, just about all of them are detachable. The only exceptions are like muzzle loaders and some bolt action rifles. And I think that there actually are some lever actions that are magazine fed. I honestly don't know, uh, but, but I think most of them are not magazine fed either, but um, the vast majority of rifles that are sold, the vast majority of the ones that people actually buy, do have the detachable magazine. I mean, to put it into car terms, for those of you that may not be all that gun savvy, uh, it would be like saying, well, we're just going to ban all of the cars that have air conditioner. Okay, is that banning all the cars? No, technically there are probably a few cars on the road that don't have air conditioner now. But good luck finding one. They're out there. But it's not real common. And so that's kind of what we're dealing with here. They, he's talking about something that is, is kind of standard amongst things that people would buy now. And he actually gets into a debate back and forth with Senator Ted Cruz where he starts arguing about this and the definition and the importance of it. So let's go ahead and watch that. Mr. Chipman, a minute ago. Uh, Senator Whitehouse asked you if any of your views on guns are out of step with the majority of the American people. Um, they are, the AR-15 is one of, if not the most popular rifle in America. It's not a machine gun. It's a rifle. Uh, your public position is that you want to ban AR-15s. Is that correct? Senator, uh, thank you for the question. And 
thank you for our visit yesterday and offering me a Dr. Pepper. It made me reminisce about my time in Central Texas. But now to your uh, question. Yeah, I was about to say, uh, with Pepper's respect to the AR-15, on I support uh, a, a ban as, um, as has been presented um, in uh, a Senate bill. Uh, and supported by the president. Um, the AR-15 is a gun I was issued on ATF's SWAT team, and it's a particularly lethal weapon, um, and regulating really? it as other particularly lethal weapons um, I have advocated for. Um, as ATF director, if I'm confirmed, I would simply enforce the laws on the books, and right now um, there is no such uh, ban on those guns. So you want to ban the most popular rifle in America? All right. So what you need to understand about that clip and everything that it implies is the first thing that I was talking about, this just reinforces that, that he's going to be like, oh, well, you know, right now there's nothing on the books. Um, but I, I would just enforce the laws as they come, which is, by the way, what, what he should do. But he knows that the way the bureaucracy works and the way that it gets fed is that it's going to be fed a law that leaves him an awful lot of room to define whatever he wants. In all likelihood, it's possible that Congress could define it more narrowly, but it seems unlikely. The second part of that that is really important, and the point that Ched Cruz is trying to drive home, is that his beliefs are wildly out of step with the average American citizen. Now, a whole lot of, you can do polls all day and night that show that most people do want assault weapons banned. But again, it depends on how you define assault weapon. Because most people in their head, they think of like a Tommy gun from the Godfather movies. But those are already illegal. You can't, can't have those. Those have been banned for a really long time. And so if that's what they're thinking about, then they're not actually, their actual beliefs do not reflect what the poll suggests that they do. And to point to this, you can actually see these are the top five selling semi-automatic rifles. So you can see there, number one, the Smith & Wesson M&P Sport 2. Number two, the Ruger PC Carbine. Number three, that one's obvious, the Colt AR-15. The Sig Sawyer Tread at number four. And the Springfield Armory St. Victor at number five. So again, the, these are not like the best. These are the best selling. And this is according to Gun Genius. Uh, these are the best selling guns in America. Let's look at how many of these semi-automatic rifles are AR-15s. Oh, just four out of the five and number one, three, four, and five. And by the way, even though number three, the Ruger PC carbine is not included in that, guess what caliber it is? Nine millimeter, which is larger than 22 and it has a detachable magazine. So according to the definition, the only definition that he did give, that one would be banned as well. All five of the top selling rifles in America <laughs> would be banned under this director if he had his way about it, if he actually has a law that allows him to do what he wants to when it comes to gun control. And he said he publicly advocates for getting rid of assault weapons in that way. And so he would just get rid of all the popular rifles that people buy. Now, to his second point, remember, he gave a rationale there. And this has nothing to do with the definition. He said, the reason that I would be against specifically the AR-15, and I think specifically they should be banned, is because they are particularly lethal. I don't know where he's getting that, and I also don't know what particularly lethal means. Because if you get shot with the Derringer, it can be lethal. 
it's not as powerful or as accurate as an AR-15 for sure, but all guns are made to be lethal. That's what guns are for. They're, they're killing devices. And you don't want to use them. I mean, they're supposed to be ideally used only for self-defense. But at the end of the day, like, that's what they are. All guns are made to be lethal. They're made to be as lethal as possible. Now, some are less lethal for the advantage of portability, the ability to conceal. You know, there's other considerations that go into making a gun. But the point is, every single one of them has the capacity to kill. And the gun manufacturers do exactly what they're supposed to do because they are killing devices. They make those guns as efficient as, at killing as possible. That is not a reason to ban them, especially when you consider the purpose of the Second Amendment is to stop any kind of government tyranny. Well, you can't do that with guns that don't kill people. If you want a gun that doesn't kill people, you get a stun gun. You don't get a gun gun. And so the, the rationale is just absurd because that would completely defeat the purpose of the Second Amendment to only have guns that aren't particularly lethal. And again, it's something vague that nobody can actually pin down. But let's ask, ask the question anyway. Is the AR-15 particularly lethal? Well, I want you to take a look at this real quick. This is a Bass Pro hunting rounds. So Bass Pro put this together, and, and remember that Bass Pro primarily caters not to people that are buying weapons for self-defense, but why buying weapons for hunting. Now, I understand the Second Amendment has nothing to do with hunting. I'm not suggesting that it does. I'm just saying this is a list of hunting rifles. And if you're looking at this and you don't know anything about guns, you might be saying, yeah, the AR-15, It's it's got to be, since it's one of these super deadly assault weapons, it's, uh, I wonder which one of these actually the AR-15 uses. It's got to be one of those ones that they use to kill like black bears, right? The one ones on the far right. Or maybe it's that super big scary one that you use to hunt moose right there. I mean, that thing would put a giant hole in you, right? It's got to be one of those. Um, let's actually look and see which one of these it really is. Oh, it's it's that one. It's the 223, the one that Actually, you can tell right there, it uh, has nothing to do with that. Um, isn't that one of the ones that is classified as a varmint round? So it's not the super scary looking ammo. It's actually one of the ones that you would use for small game. Because it doesn't make a giant hole uh i remember there was a, a congressperson a while back a state congressperson that actually said that if you shot something with an ar-15 for hunting that it, you wouldn't even be able to eat it because it would tear up all the meat <laughs> i was just sitting there like no no this person has no idea what they're talking about now for comparison's sake let's just go ahead and look at a comparison of what an AR-15 does versus what a 12-gauge shotgun does, the most popular shotgun in America. So on your left, you'll see the holes that 223 ammo, which the AR-15 uses, the kind that they make. So you'll see there's different grains, different uh, kinds of 223 ammo, but they're all 223 ammo, the kind that 
the AR-15 uses. And then over there on the right, by the way, this is both on drywall, so we're using the same substance. It's not that, you know, one was shooting something squishy and one was shooting something hard. This is the same substance. This is both drywall. Over there on the right, you see that great big hole there? That's a 12-gauge shotgun, the most popular shotgun gauge in America. Yet nobody's talking about banning shotguns because it's politically unpopular. Now, they will come for those eventually. Make no mistake. But the point is, this is all for politics. The AR-15 is not a uniquely lethal weapon. You, you can see right there the damage that an AR-15 does versus what a shotgun would do. There's simply no comparison. And that doesn't mean that an AR-15 is not a good whip weapon to kill somebody with because, I mean, yeah, it is. It's an AR-15. It's, it's designed to do that. But the idea that it is somehow particularly lethal compared to all the other firearms out there that he's not suggesting that we ban is frankly just incorrect. For somebody that's supposed to know an awful lot about guns, he doesn't seem to be real savvy on that. Or, and I think that this is the more likely scenario, he actually does know what he's talking about. He's just trying to mislead people to suit his agenda. Let's look at this last exchange between him and Cruz. So when you say it didn't go far enough, you mean that you don't just want to ban the manufacturer of those rifles. You don't just want to make it illegal to sell those rifles, but you want to actively have government go after the people who currently possess firearms. And if they don't register and submit to all of the onerous restrictions of the National Firearms Act, presumably confiscate their weapons. Senator, um, what I've said publicly is that uh, as an advocate, uh, I prefer a system where the AR-15 um, and other assault weapons are regulated under the National Firearms Act. All right. So what you heard there is he's saying that, well, I'm just for a system where the AR-15 would be regulated under the National Firearms Act. To the person that has no idea what that means, that sounds pretty reasonable and benign, doesn't it? Like, I'm just saying that they should be regulated. That's all I'm saying. The people that would look at that and be like, oh, that's not such a big deal. They have no idea what the National Firearms Act actually is. The National Firearms Act is the piece of law that originally outlawed things like machine guns and sawed-off shotguns. I think the sawed-off shotgun was actually added later. But the point is, that's what he's saying. Okay, well, shotguns are basically illegal in this country now. You can't get them. The only way you can get a machine gun is if you are literally a millionaire. I mean, it costs thousands upon thousands of dollars. And not only that, if you are one of these people that has the special licenses to own a machine gun, you cannot transfer it. You cannot let somebody else, you can't even let another person, a member of your own family, shoot that gun unless they have a license to. I mean, the regulation that is on these things is just insane. And you cannot own one unless you're a millionaire. And the other thing is, they're not allowed to make those, the gun manufacturers, for any kind of commercial use. So they can't make a consumer model of those firearms, which means that all the ones that, they, that are available are insanely expensive because they're super rare. And they're very old. And the older a gun gets, the less safe it gets. And so what this would do is it would effectively put the AR-15 on the path to becoming exactly like the machine gun if this were to take place. And this is what he's suggesting that we do. He's saying this is his personal belief. Now, we're, we're moving past 
what you would define as assault rifle and moving to, no, this is something that I advocate for, that it be regulated under this law. If you do that, he is talking about banning AR-15s. So when Beto O'Rourke, Bob Francis, as he's more commonly known, when he stood up on the stage and said, HS, we're coming for your guns, he meant it. This is what the Obama, this is what the Obama Biden administration was doing back then. It's what Biden is continuing to do now. They're trying to find ways around the Second Amendment to be able to confiscate your guns. And even if they have some kind of grandfather clause, everybody that has an AR-15 right now gets to keep them, that still puts them on the path to where the AR-15 will eventually be like a machine gun, and so nobody will be able to actually have one. Now, that would take a lot longer because of how many AR-15s there are, but the point is that's what it would eventually do. It would make it to where you were not able to own an AR-15. And the sad thing is Trump actually kind of put a precedent forward with this because he did exactly the same thing with bump stocks. He just said, uh, through executive order, by the way, not through legislation, not by actually passing any laws, he just was basically like, uh, you know what? I think they should be classified as machine guns. Totally. Um, and that's what happened. That's how he, with a stroke of his pen, decided, yeah, bump stocks are illegal now. Now, here's the thing. I understand the rationale behind banning bump stocks if you're going to ban machine guns. Like, if you, if you ban machine guns, you have to ban the thing that makes a regular gun basically a machine gun, even though it doesn't do that perfectly. But anyway, I understand the rationale, but whether or not I even agree with it, the way that he did it was wrong. And it gave, ironically, the left ammo to do things exactly like this to conservatives in the future. And that that is on Trump. Uh, he's not the originator of the idea, probably. They probably would have done something similar to this anyway. But the point is, Trump actually set a dangerous precedent by doing that. And, and you know, I know that a lot of you really wish that he was president right now, and I do too, but that is not a good legacy for him to have when it came to firearms. But what this all should emphasize is that while Biden is no moderate, even if he were a moderate, all of the people he's putting into place are radicals. And even if he were personally moderate, it wouldn't matter because he's putting a bunch of radicals in place that are carrying out radical agendas. And so even if he personally were just an old-timey Democrat, his administration would still be wildly to the left. To the point that they're saying, yeah, let's just get rid of the most popular firearms in America and confiscate them from people. And no apologies for it. I mean, that, that's who Biden's people are. And that's a reflection of the legacy that his presidency is going to leave behind. All right, so let's go ahead and go to the chaplain's report. In 1775, the Continental Congress created the Chaplain Corps. Under the command of General George Washington, each soldier was required to attend worship service every Sunday. While other armies advanced on their feet, Washington's troops advanced on their knees. It's time for The Chaplain's Report with Caleb Colquitt on tactics. Our Chaplain's Report this evening comes from the book of 1 Samuel. We're continuing our, our series there. And you may recall that in the story and the part of it that we're reading right now, that David has fled Saul 
for his life. Saul is coming after him. He's pursuing him. In the most recent chapter that we just read in Psalm 22, Saul killed a bunch of God's priests and an entire village just for helping David out. And so Saul is in legitimate fear of his life. Saul is willing to go to insane degrees to try to make sure that he kills David, including killing innocent people for the crime of just being kind to him and feeding him and, and helping him and his men out. And this is even crazier when you consider that David has expressed no interest in taking Saul's throne. He's expressed no interest in taking over the kingdom. He's not tried to do anything to Saul, not tried to injure him, even though Saul has, you know, he'd actually be justified in defending himself from Saul because Saul's already personally attacked him twice. And so all of this is going on, and David is running from Saul, trying to just stay alive when a very interesting thing happens to David, and that's where our story picks up here. 1 Samuel 23, verses 1 through 5. Then they informed David, saying, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Kilai. Uh, Kilah? Kilah. We'll go with Kilah. And they are plundering the threshing floors. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Kilah. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are fearful here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Kalah against the ranks of the Philistines? So David inquired of the Lord once more. And the Lord answered him and said, Arise, go down to Kalah, for I am going to hand the Philistines over to you. Then David and his men went to Kalah and fought the Philistines, and he drove away their livestock and struck them with a great slaughter. So David saved the inhabitants. Of Kilah. So a couple things we need to ask ourselves here. Were the concerns of David's men legitimate? Oh, I would say absolutely so. Saul has already slaughtered an entire village just to try to get to David. This is a man on a mission that will not be deterred. He wants David's head. And rest assured, as crazy as and paranoid as he's been throughout this whole thing, he's going to kill everybody that's with David. It's not like, oh, I took out David. You guys, you're going to be fine. And uh, you just, you know, swear loyalty to me and, and we just won't worry about the fact that you've been following David. No, David killed priest, God's actual priest, for feeding David. You don't think he's going to kill David's subordinates, his men that he's been running with this whole time, that have been walking with him and, and staying away from Saul and trying to duck away from him? Yeah, they're afraid for their lives too. And that's why when David asked God, hey, should we go down to to kill and, and help them out. They seem to have a pretty bad Philistine problem. And God says, yes. The men are like, uh, David, you sure about that? We're here in Judah. This is basically Saul's backyard. Yes, he's a Benjamite, but he's just over the hill here. And we're kind of in the middle of Jerusalem, or not Jerusalem. We're in the middle of Israel right now. And uh, if we go down to this place, we may have to deal with Saul. And that's on top of dealing with the Philistines that are going to be there too. And so we, we could wind up between a rock and a hard place. And so it is a very precarious situation. And I think that that's one thing that the brevity of the scripture here probably doesn't emphasize enough. Not to say that I'm questioning the inspiration and how it was put together. Just saying that if you're just sort of casually reading through it, you probably don't pick up on that. 
But these men are legitimately terrified because we're like, we could wind up trying to do the right thing and helping these guys out against the Philistines and wind up sandwiched between two armies that want to kill us. And that's not a good place to be. And so it's interesting that even though God already said to David, yes, you're supposed to go down there. What does David do? He goes back to God and asks, God, you, you sure about that? You sure you want me to go down to Keilah? Now, David is a man of great faith. And we see that throughout the scripture, even when he screws up, he has a great deal of faith. But I do find it very interesting that he feels the need to ask God again. He, he effectively gets a second opinion, a second opinion from the same God. But he, he basically goes to God in prayer and gets a second opinion on that and says, God, you're absolutely sure I have to go down to Kilah to fight these Philistines. And God says, yes. And if you do it, I will put the Philistines into your hands. You don't have to worry. And so what does David do? He says, all right. And he heads down there and does exactly what God tells him to do. And he rescues the inhabitants of Kilah. So this is really interesting because David is still a soldier of Israel. He's still a servant of God, and he's still a soldier of Israel. He was still actually part of Saul's army, weirdly enough, even though he's running from Saul at this point. And so even the fact that his life is in danger from the king of this nation still doesn't deter him from, A, doing his duty as a servant of God to listen to what God says, and B, doing his duty as a soldier as somebody that is a citizen of Israel, even at the risk of his own life in a very severe way from his own commanding officer and father-in-law, does not deter him from doing what God told him to do. And I think that's really interesting because God's reaction to this is basically, David, I know that it's a bad situation, but do what I tell you, and I will take care of you. If you do what I tell you, I will de deliver these Philistines into your hand. And that's good enough for David. David hears that and is like, well, God said it. Must be what we got to do now. And if he said it, it is going to come to pass. He has an amazing amount of faith in God. I mean, this is something that shouldn't come as a surprise to us because we know about Goliath. We know how he reacted to that. We know how he's been throughout this whole episode in this back and forth with Saul. And so when God says it, that's the way it is. That settles it right there. David needs no more explanation than that. Now, to be fair, he did have to go back and ask a second time. But once God reassured him and added the, the caveat, and by the way, I'm going to deliver your enemies into your hands, then David's like, all right, let's go. And I think David probably would have gone anyway, but... It is interesting that he, that he did a second asking of, of God and what he wanted him to do. But I want to point out a couple of things. First of all, what is David doing right now? He is putting he and his own, li his own life and his men's lives at risk to fulfill his duty to his country. See, David is acting like a king. Saul isn't. Saul is running around the country, killing his own civilians, trying to get at David because he feels as though he is a threat to his throne. You see, if you want a good illustration of why God wanted David and not Saul, that's a pretty good contrast right there. David is not king and acting like it 
Saul is king and acting like the only thing that matters is him. He's more important than the country because he's the king. David is saying, no, my country is more important than my safety. And that's the difference in the two of them. David put God first, Israel second, and his own safety third. Saul put himself above all of that. And that's why David became a great king, and Saul is remembered for doing some good things, but ultimately is remembered as being the villain in this story. Because he couldn't put his own self aside long enough to see that he had a duty to God and a duty to his country. And whenever it came between doing those things or doing what he wanted, he wound up doing what he wanted. David winds up doing what God asks, even if it's dangerous or even if he doesn't want to. And that's the same kind of faithful attitude that I believe that we need to have. And you'll notice too, do you remember why God's spirit departed from Saul and why Saul was no longer fit to be king? It was in the episode where he refused to kill the Amalekites and King Agag. And you remember what happened is when Samuel said, well, you didn't do what God told you to do. He says, well, yeah, I kind of did. But see, what happened is the people, they kept rising up and saying, we need to do this. And so I listened to the people. Now, first of all, that's a terrible excuse. But just ignore that for a second. Isn't that exactly what just happened with David? You see, Saul and David had exactly the same choice. Saul's men were saying, you know what, let's not kill all these choice livestock. There's some really nice livestock. Have you seen that back pasture back there? There's some nice looking cattle back there. Let's take those back. Now, whether or not it was actually intended as a sacrifice or that was just Saul trying to save face, I honestly don't know. But either way, he did what the people suggested, not what God told him to do. When David is faced with exactly the same choice, his men are afraid. They don't want to go. They're saying, look, we're already in trouble just being in Judah, and you want us to go to Kilah and fight the Philistines on top of fleeing from this army? And David says, yes, it's what God said to do. We're doing it. That's the difference in those two men. When the people wanted to do their own thing, Saul went along with it. When the people wanted to do their own thing with David and God said, do something else, David said, oh, we're going to do what God said. Men, if you want to be good fathers to your children, if you want to be good husbands to your wives, if you want to be the leaders that God made you to be, you follow David. And what did David do? He did what God told him to do. It didn't matter what the people said. It didn't matter what the, the circumstances were. When God gave him an order, David carried it out no matter what. And that doesn't mean he was perfect, and it doesn't mean that he didn't make a lot of screw-ups when it came to the rest of his life. But I think this is a very underrated story in the life of David, one that we don't talk about a whole lot. But it is a very bright contrast between the reason that Saul was rejected as a king and David was accepted as a man after God's own heart and somebody that was worthy of the throne of Israel. Because when it came right down to it, David did what God asked him to do, and Saul did. It's just as simple as that. And if we want to be the kind of person that God made us to be, if we want to be the kind of king or the kind of leader in our family or leader in our community or leader in our church or whatever else it is that we're called to do, it's actually real simple. When the world tells us to do one thing and God tells us to do something else, we go with God. We don't go with what the people say. 
stay the course, friends. Thank you for listening to the Tactics Podcast. Tactics is a production of Not Ashamed Media. Any opinions expressed on this program are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of our business partners or sponsors. Graphics by Jessica Dawson. Video production by Jackson Dean. Broadcast studio provided by Faulkner University. Location studio provided by Delreda Church of Christ. Copyright 2021.